Did you ever notice how men always leave the toilet seat up? That's the joke. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Square Waves FM podcast. Ever, ever, ever so pleased to have you all along for us on this magical mystery tour of nerdery and dorkitude. <laughs> I am uh, your, uh, one of your hosts. My name is Brian, and with me, as always, is... Yeah, it's your good friend, Chris, who thinks about all you folk all week. How are you, Brian? I'm doing really well. I uh, I had a real busy week, and I... Oh, I had some stupid, crappy adventures this week, now that I think of it. Oh. Um, so, uh, it, my wife was taking a shower on Thursday night, and right. the faucet on the shower, just when she tried to turn it off, it just didn't turn off, yep. and it was gushing, gushing, gushing water. Oh, yeah. So, uh, our bathroom is, like, right across the hall from our uh, bedroom, so right. uh, we couldn't get the the uh, superintendent or a plumber to come until the next day, and so we oh, wow. uh, just closed the door and tried to forget about it, but I kept having these nightmares about uh, flooding and stuff like that. We're up on the eighth floor. Wait, wait, so, so, so like, the water was just running all through the night? Yes, it was. There's nothing we could do about it. When you when oh you live in an apartment, God. yeah, like it's all centralized water flow and all that, or at right. least floor by there's floor. No, there's no shutoff. That's right. So uh, we were kind of at its mercy. So I kept waking up <laughs> from nightmares about flooding just to get up and check on whether it was okay. And thank goodness there was no flooding or anything. Because, I mean, it's a good thing we have insurance. Because if you're on the eighth floor and you have a bunch of water dripping through the floor, then there's sure. seven more floors of bedrooms that you're screwing up. So Holy crap. That's, that's uh, like... Unbelievable! I've, I've never seen that happen. I would have, I would have been more worried that like the sound of running water would make me like piss the bed in the middle of the night or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank goodness that didn't add to our our excitement. So I got to stay home from work yeah. that next day, waiting for the plumber or the superintendent to come. He's awesome, and he fixed us right Holy up. Cow. And so I so, took that opportunity so... to install a couple of air conditioners, which had just arrived. Yeah. Uh, from oh, Best Buy, and uh, that was fun. There was a lot of heavy lifting and grunting and foul language, and I kind of cheese gratered my hand a little <laughs> bit by grabbing the grill where I shouldn't have. But uh, oh shit! Now we have these ridiculous industrial strength like iceberg machines <laughs> blowing in our faces all the time, which is just heaven. Well, it's like kind of weird. Like I, I just assumed everyone in Toronto had AC. I had no idea you didn't have AC. As a matter of fact, a lot of people here don't have AC. Like, we wow. we had a really old, lousy unit. I guess it was up to a couple of years ago. We kind of inherited it okay. from my, wi- my wife's dad, who lives in the building next to us. He had two of them and donated oh. one to us. And it was, like, 18 years old or something. Like, the air filter sure. was all yellowed, and the thing was, like, falling <laughs> apart. What, and one so, of those things with, like, the little accordion thing you have to stick in the window to keep yeah, it from... Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was, like, the color of a smoker long, I suppose. It was really nasty looking. <laughs> so that kind of gave up the ghost last year and started making these ridiculous kind of uh, uh, like marbles in a cement mixer kind of a noise. <laughs> so we figured that was the end of that. So last year we just kind of dealt with only having fans, which worked oh. well about 90% of the summer, but those days where it was like 32 Celsius, 35 Celsius, we were sure. really dying. So we figured we better do something about it this year. 
the humidity is just absolutely punishing in that city. Like, I don't know yeah. if you you notice this, but... Uh, oh, totally. Well, I mean, having, having lived in Calgary for 10 years, that's yeah. extremely dry weather. And here it's so humid that, like, even moderately low temperatures, 25 Celsius or so, they it really yeah. sticks to you. Exactly. And I, I was having... when I, Last time I was there, I was having showers every two hours. Like, I just couldn't... I could not handle... And it was maybe 26, 27 tops. But I could not handle that level of, of, of humidity, which is terrific. It's gross. Well, it's kind of twofold around where I live, too, because we're sort of uptown where it's just very urban and paved and stuff. So, like, right. number one, all the concrete kind of acts like a battery for the sunlight. So however hot it is, it's going to remain hot, like, even after the sun goes down for a good while. It's like kind of you're getting baked from above and below at the same time. Plus, uh, with the humidity being as high as it is in Toronto, um, when you right. sweat, it doesn't evaporate because it's already so humid around you, and that's what <laughs> makes you so hot. So that really sucks. So oh, I, I'm man. the kind of guy that would rather be too cold than too hot, so I don't usually oh, look yeah, forward definitely. to summers. Yeah, that's where I am, too. I guess I, that is totally a prairie's way of thinking about life. It's like I'd rather be too cold than too hot. I guess so. It's funny you know, when I saw, when I, I remember I ran into this Australian tourist once uh, in Japan, and we were talking about it, because I, I found it perfect in Japan. I just thought the weather was, mind you, I was there in November, so to me, to me, Japan was like, in November it was around, I want to say about 15, 20 degrees Celsius during the day. That's heaven and, for me. Uh, oh, yeah, and I remember walking around in t-shirts and everywhere, and this Australian tourist, who's, I'll never forget the guy's name, Jonathan Prendergast, because <laughs> I... I I had never heard of living printer gas before, and uh, he, he, uh, he was a really great guy I met at the hospital. And he, uh, he was covered, like he was just in, in layers and layers of clothing, and he, and he said, do you guys, don't you guys want to swear a parka? And he said, it almost got down to like below 10 degrees Celsius last night, and I, <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? I went out for a piss last This is actually a really funny story. I don't know why I'm on the subject of taking a piss, but... Uh, <laughs> So I uh, I was staying at this hostel, met the Jonathan Prendergast guy, and he said, you know, I, I said, oh, I went out for a piss last night. It was just perfect. Like it was, and and he said, yeah, isn't that the strangest bathroom you've ever seen in your life? And I said, it was very odd. So, oh yeah, oh, I'll, I'll, it's the weirdest bathroom I've ever seen in my life. So, and bathroom is a kind. It was, it was a, a hostel that was two buildings and I don't know if you've ever seen Japanese architecture but some of the houses are so close together oh, that yeah. uh, they're, the roof eaves kind of overlap on each other so there's uh. like one one roof eave and the other roof eave just slightly above it so that the water runs off one roof and falls onto the next roof mm-hmm. well in the hallways there's a sign that says bathrooms this way and it's a little uh, and then there's a little door and you step out of the door and I realized I was in the alley, like this, like two foot wide alley between both buildings, and uh, I was like, "What the hell?" And they put down planks, like wooden planks everywhere, so you could step on them. And I guess that's uh, so your feet don't get wet on the uh, on the alley pavement. So mm. I walk, and there's a little arrow that says "bathrooms this way," and I walk down, and I all of a sudden I'm walking on grass. I'm like, "What the hell is going on? Did I go the wrong way?" And I'm squinting because it's like two thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I walk over, and they somebody had taken a like a, a men's urinal, like a big white urinal, leaned it up against the side of the building, and 
had one side, you're kind of pissing into the urinal, and I was like, where did that drain go? And I looked down and realized it's going straight into the lawn. Oh! <laughs> oh. Yeah. So all that nice, cushy, wet lawn I was walking on was probably somebody else's, yeah. Oh, uh, some Australian piss. Yeah, Australian piss. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I thought about that whole time. Oh, so, that's pretty yucky. Walk- it was disgusting. I remember walking back and kind of, like, wiping my feet all over these logs, and I'm like, am I, like, the 5,000th person that's been, like, shocked by this? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's funny. The Japan is, like, the cleanest country I've ever been in, most wonderful, and, and yet it was, yeah, the, the most disgusting bathroom I've ever seen in my life. I that's think hostels, I think with hostels, anything goes. That's true, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm lucky I'm lucky they didn't have like a pit pot in the corner or something that I'd have to dump myself. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> well speaking so, about yeah, it's... Oh go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I got oh. uh, that that's all I was gonna say was Australians they, they they take the opposite. They'd rather have it too hot than too cold, I think. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Well dialing it back to that, um it reminds me of when I went to San Francisco. Um why was he in San Francisco? Oh, I'll brag about that afterwards. I, I was there for the best possible reason. Um, in San Francisco, oh, wow. I was just visiting there for the day, kind of taking a break at the end of a business trip. And sure. it, in San Francisco, like every single day, it's like 21 or 22 Celsius. I think That's it's like right. 72 yeah, to 75 Fahrenheit or something. Um, exactly. The day that I went there, it was 20 Celsius. And I was I was doing my best, like walking around in this in this big strange city not to look like a tourist or anything i don't i you know i was downtown in these huge tall buildings with such unique architecture and like interesting um geography and alleyways and stuff like that but i was trying not to look up at the things and gawk at things to the best of my ability and lo and behold i looked like such a canadian because it was one degree celsius cooler than the average and i was the only person not wearing a jacket and like clutching at my elbows frozen solid those poor people they don't know what temperature variance is what time of year was that that must have been i think it was like may or june or something Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, they're all wearing these, like, windbreakers. And <laughs> they look like they're going to freeze to death. <laughs> it's like if somebody worked like... in a meat locker in Canada or something, they'd wear a jacket like that. <laughs> wow, that's really weird. And, like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't, well, you know, I don't think of Canadians as being particularly hardy to the weather. Like, I've met, you know, people from all over. I, I always think of Russians or something as being much more, much more built to the weather. Or people way up north, the Aboriginal people are really, like, they... It's, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it's like people have different sensitivity ranges or something. Because like, when it's, when it's I don't know, when it's minus twenty out west, it's cold. It's cold. Period. It's cold for everyone. Um, but I always notice that when it's like minus one in springtime, there's people wearing like border shorts, walking around in like, uh, in like, uh, and like t-shirts and stuff. And I'm like. I know you guys are cold because anyone would be cold in that, but it's like seems like you guys are willing to tolerate it just because it's sunny out. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe it. It's a really weird. I think that's a very weird Alberta thing. Is like walk around in t-shirts and shorts when it's minus one just because it, it's sunny for the first time in three months. Oh no, it's an Ontario thing too. Well, I think that's well, that's <laughs> what makes Canadians so tough is the fact that it's so temperate that we have high hots and colds and like low that's colds. True. We, yeah, we're that's kind true. of exposed you, to the range. We do have those those extremes, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, oh, so, so before we move on, I have to uh, brag about why I was in San Francisco. This, yeah. uh, 
This was quite a while ago. This must have been like a good eight or nine years ago or so now. Um, at yep. the time, I was working for, a, they were called a value-added reseller. So they were like an IT company that okay. sold hardware and software, but they also sold professional services. And at the time, I was specializing uh. in a product called the Google Search Appliance, which was like this disgusting-looking yellow Swiss cheese of a rack mount okay. server. It was like a, okay. a little 2U rack mount server, and it was yep. bright yellow and had all these holes on it. And it was basically like a search engine that you would install and deploy in your own environment and it would do make a search oh. index of the content that's within your infrastructure so that you didn't have to open it up to the internet. It was a Weird. fun so, little so product. Google's like search algorithms built into the server? Yeah, pretty much, although it was wow. customized to some degree because uh, you're, you're not really competing, per se, against other sources yeah, right. with your internal stuff. You would just like type in a keyword oh. and it would look at the file name and at the contents of the file and how many times it it comes up and it actually tried to like find the relevance of the the search sure. term that you were looking for to see if that was the topic of the document that you were uh, looking for in your search results. It was kind of neat. It was a good time working with that stuff. Basically, like Google without all the shittiness of autocomplete and AdWords. Um, it well, no AdWords, thank goodness. It did have autocomplete, which was pretty uh, lousy on the enterprise side. It's a lot better on the uh, on the public uh, web side sure. but it was a fun little product to work with anyway so oh. um it was brand new to me at the time and so uh, much to my luck there was no training for that device anywhere in canada and in fact uh because of the time of year that i needed the training the only place to get that training was in mountain view california at google's <laughs> official main headquarters their world headquarters Are you you've been to google headquarters yeah i attended three days of training right at their Headquarters Holy in Mountain crap. View. It was so awesome. I had such a good time. There. I am. I am genuinely impressed. Oh, that that is absolutely wild. Oh, I, yeah. I love bragging about this. I feel like such a big shot. I was <laughs> there for like three days. It was a really cool, so, like chilled out place. Oh my gosh, the food there is so crazy, incredible. Everybody gets fed for free. They have like four meals a day or something like that that you can go anytime you want and they're always serving like 14 different things and you can go up as many times as you want and oh it was such a pig there they have all these drink fridges everywhere it was wicked i would never survive there i would i would gain 500 pounds after a week well that's kind of their philosophy they sort of want you to survive there like literally they don't really want you to go home they have like daycares and laundry services and uh and uh Oh, I don't know. They, they try to give you everything. They have, like, sleep pods and stuff like that. We, I saw so many engineers' desks that, like, where in the well where your knees go, they would have a curtain there for people that wanted to sleep under their desks. It was kind of disturbing. Jesus, that's, in, that's insane. It's funny that you mentioned it because I was uh, a friend of mine had a listening to a podcast. I think, I think it's just a general podcast which talks to people who have interesting or odd jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the people he talked to was a Google coder, um, and she talked about what her average workday was like at Google. And I was really—I don't know—it just sounds—it—it it sounds odd. I couldn't quite grasp how much of what she was saying was kind of corporate mumbo jumbo, mm-hmm. and how much of it was, you know, genuinely like this is the best place I've ever worked in my life. Um, it right. sounds like it's more of the latter. Geez. Well, it does have a lot of perks, but they work you really, really hard there, apparently. They have, yeah. like, com- competition of uh, employees against each other to rationalize right. and to, like, fight for their own jobs all the time. And it's, oh, uh, really? At least at the time, anyway. It, there's a lot of pressure. Oh, jeez. Wow, I didn't realize that. 
And that doesn't the, sound very productive. Well, it, they, they're pretty productive, I think. I don't know if they're the most productive. Well, it's they, they've grown I, I, exponentially. I don't, know. I don't think I don't think Google's uh, d- doing very well in terms of business. Trust me, I know a lot more about business. <laughs> right. Well, there's uh, there's been like debates lately, actually, about um, about whether Google's business model is going to continue to be sustainable, just because really? they rely so much on advertising. Like ninety something percent of oh. their revenue is about advertising, and people are Holy less crap, like really? we're more resistant to advertising than ever now because we've been so saturated by that by it that sure. we as a civilization are starting to ignore it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's wow. Uh, I didn't real I didn't realize that that was even yeah a consideration at Google. I thought they're still swimming in money. It'll be interesting. Well, the the best uh, the best criticism I think I ever heard uh, about Google was it. It might have been my friend Bram who told me this, or some other yeah. engineer, just saying that Google is the company where like four percent of the world's best engineers that have ever lived are all selling Viagra. They're all just because it's all it's all advertising based. So that's basically the purpose of every single one of these engineers is to sell stuff to people. It's a very like pessimistic view of the situation. Of course, that was so pessimistic it actually took me oh, five seconds to get it. Holy crap! <laughs> yeah, uh, that actually that actually reminds me of a terrible joke I heard. Uh, I uh, I got I got I got to retell this joke. I've only heard the joke once, so I apologize everyone if I botched it and. And to the joke's credit, it took me a full minute to get the gravity of the joke. So, uh, All right, lay it so there's on me. this. Uh, it's it's on the same uh, it's on the same scale as your uh, as uh, Bram's uh, joke about Google. So, mm. this uh, this uh, academic, this uh, professor, hires a uh, a plumber to come over and fix his taps. So this is very timely for you. Um, mm. And uh, this uh, plumber comes by, fixes his taps, and. Uh, uh, the academic is happy as hell, and he says, "Oh, thank you so much." The plumber hands him the bill, and he's shocked. It's like six hundred bucks, and uh, the academic goes, "Jesus, that's a, that's half of my pay for the month. How do you, how do you guys get away with this?" And the plumber just goes, "Well, oh, you know, I don't know. That's just what we're paid. Um, maybe you need to change your careers." So the next day, the uh, professor shows up at the uh, the plumber's work and says, "Hey." Uh, and I, uh, I want to become a plumber. Can I get a job here? And uh, guy, the plumber looks at him and goes, oh, I recognize you. You're that uh, professor from yesterday, eh? And um, he goes, all right, all right. We'll, tra- we'll train you how to be a plumber, but uh, you're going to have to go through our you know, intensive training program. And, uh, and uh, the... Uh... <laughs> oh, my God, my girlfriend's trying to coach me through a joke. I was I was paying attention to the traffic lights. Thank you, honey. So uh, the uh, <laughs> so the uh, so we uh, the plumber looks at him and says, "Okay, well, tell you what, you can work here or you can train here, but you got to tell everyone you got a sixth grade education because nobody looks too kindly on anybody with a kind of educational background that you have." So the professor goes, "Okay, okay. So I'll just I'll just pretend uh, pretend I'm dumb." And, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just nod and smile to everything. So they go through this long, intensive training process, and uh, at the very end, uh, you know, the, uh, they, they announced that uh, the professor has to take a math course. And pre- professor who's, uh, you know, got quite the educational background. By the way, if I feel a little, sound a little distracted, it's just because I'm trying to get some gas. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm doing, I'm doing three things at once here. Um, 
professor goes uh, to this math course and he goes, oh, shit, you know, I'm going to, they're going to find me out if, uh, if they find out that I know all this stuff about math. So I got to really, really pretend I'm dumb. And, uh, oh, you know what? I, I realized I'm going to botch the joke. There's no way I could, I could pull off the punchline. It's too difficult. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, uh, I just realized that. Okay, well, I'll try it. I'll tell you what, I'll try it. Just, just, oh. Give it your best shot, bud. Still there? One sec. <laughs> Hold on. You still there? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I dropped. I dropped the phone and everything with me. Okay. So <laughs> this is exciting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you can tell I'm a little distracted. Okay. So the. Uh, oh, I'm gonna fill up the thing with gas as I'm talking. Professor goes. Okay. So I gotta. I gotta think my way through this, and he's trying to think of a thousand ways in which you can look. Kind of like he's got a sixth grade education, education, but he's uh, he's you know smart enough. So the teacher goes to trying to assess uh, the learning level of all these people, and uh, he says to him, "Okay, well you you there, uh, you know the the smiling one. I want you to come to the board and derive the area of a circle." And uh, and the professor in his head goes, "Oh shit! Like I actually know how to do this." Um, and uh, and look, how do I how do I think this now? And uh, and he goes, okay, well, I'm going to pretend I don't really know what I'm doing. So he goes up to the board and he starts he starts uh, calculating this out really slowly. He starts calculating the area of the circle, and uh, and he's going. He's working for about 20 minutes, and uh, he he gets to the end and he goes, ah, voila! And he shows shows this big complicated equation, and uh, and uh, the Sorry, sorry for all the noise, by the way, everyone. I'm at a noisy gas station. Uh, <laughs> he calculates out this complex formula, puts it on the board, and all of a sudden, this is where I'm going to botch the joke, just because it's a very subtle joke. Um, everyone uh, looks at him and looks at the equation, and there's these 10 plumbers around him, all uh, kind of frowning, and they go, well, it's pretty close, but it's not perfect, uh, you know, the way you derived X in relation to Y isn't great, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, this is what, this is what frustrates me. I'm totally botching this note. And the professor kind of frowns, and he realizes that everyone in the plumbing course is a professor. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> that was uh-huh. an interesting telling of this <laughs> joke. <laughs> I have never told a joke worse in my life. Wow. Well, that, now we've got it Recorded for posterity. I'm so glad I could tell everybody the punchline. <laughs> Explain away the punchline. Oh, oh man. good God, that was Any terrible. Punchline you say can and will be used against you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, there must be a few gasoline fumes getting to me now. So, uh... <laughs> well, that was time well spent. Thank you for that, Chris. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad I put finally our podcast to some good use. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so all I could think of was yes, that uh, reminds me a lot of your plumber, who's probably your. I'm guessing your building, your building, uh, your building uh, manager is probably an academic. That's my best guess. Could very well be. Well, he <laughs> knows one hell of a lot, uh, a lot more uh, stuff about uh, maintenance than I ever will. That's for sure. He's a such a gracious, kind, very, very talented, handy. Guy, boy, are we lucky to have such well, a good superintendent. So we're very grateful for his help for solving our shower-related woes. 
I kind of feel like you, you need to go back and like edit out that chunk on the podcast. You know? <laughs> no way, man! <laughs> Absolutely not. Whatever, whatever that, <laughs> whatever that uh, joke lacked in coherence, it made up for with anticipation. <laughs> you went on a whole, a whole adventure from beginning. to I should have got my girlfriend to tell the joke. She was, she, she, she explained away half the punchline halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, what I'm going to do to distract myself even more is I'm going to grab a coffee from the drive-thru as we as we keep our podcast rolling. <laughs> okay, you go grab your coffee. I will, uh, I will regale everyone about my tales of video game zen that I experienced oh, yeah. over the course of this week. So I've kind of determined that my life in general has kind of been elevated to the state of video game zen, and I will give three examples of this because I was very surprised and proud of myself for the way that I handled these uh, relatively harrowing <laughs> situations. So um, I was at... I was at work one day, and... Uh, <laughs> Can I get a small, uh, a small cop... Oh, sorry, a uh, small cappuccino and a uh, uh, large root beer, please. <laughs> Tell the whole podcast, why don't you? Uh, skim, please. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the worst okay, podcast ever. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Thank you. So, yes, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Hey, it's all right with you. <laughs> all right, so I uh, was like walking down the hall of my uh, workplace, and uh, a door, a, a coworker opened up a door very suddenly. And I think I was looking at my phone at the same time. A coworker opened up a door suddenly and uh, was flying right towards my face, and I just like very calmly just stopped, and it like swung an inch from my face. I reacted what? to it like without even thinking. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I was very proud of myself for that. Um, on my way home that day, uh, some some jerk in front of me was like turning a corner really fast uh, in the intersection right in front of me. And he turned it so fast that one of his hubcaps flew off and was like... Uh, wow, that's like on TV. Yeah, it was. It was like Dukes of Hazard stuff there. Who so even like, has hubcaps anymore? <laughs> I don't know. This guy. Well, not anymore. Nobody knew. <laughs> so it, it was like, ro it rolled like right between uh, the guy in front of me and the guy and myself. Right. And I just gently, uh, gently tapped on the brakes a little bit and it rolled like harmlessly right past me and smacked into the curb. So it was nothing. Beautiful. So I was very proud of myself for that one too. Just my general spatial awareness of, of instantly uh, dangerous Man, that's situations. Man, like that's like two quick time events in one week. Totally. Well, and then I had a third one, which was similar to the first one, where I was about to go into my apartment building, and there's this, like, blind door where if you're going in and somebody's coming out at the same time, and right. there's a good chance that they're going to smack you in the head. And it was the exact same story. I just stepped aside, and uh, my my uh, neighbor was profusely apologetic, and I just said, oh, it's okay, wow. couldn't have known. So I am so grateful for playing as many video games as I have. Oh, and in fact, I... <laughs> I'll add a fourth one, which was when I was um, putting, uh, like, attaching some of the components onto my air conditioners that I installed yeah. this week. It was my first time, I think, ever ah. using a drill. Um, oh, really? And our drill, we were given the opportunity to buy two different drills. One of them okay. was one that could be used like a screwdriver, and if there's a certain amount of resistance, then it does this kind of ratcheting thing where it, like, stops gotcha. applying and it goes click, click, click. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
the other one for the same price was the one that the salesman, the awesome Canadian tire salesman that was so, so nice and even demonstrated how to use it. Uh, kudos to you, wow. Canadian tire, for being amazing. Uh, he wanted. He said that for, for the same amount of money, what he would personally buy is this other drill that could be used as like a, what it, it was called like a hammer drill or something like that for oh. like plowing things into the concrete walls because really? we live in an apartment. So you bought a hammer drill? It was like 70 bucks. It was nothing. It was half price that day, too. Holy so we got the shit. hammer drill, which can also be used as a screwdriver, but it doesn't do that ratcheting thing. You have to have like yeah. a really light touch so that you don't uh, right. you use don't too much torque screw, and yeah. strip the screws. So uh, both uh, my wife did a very good job of the first few screws in the first one. And then I said, oh, right. can I try it? And I did a slightly better job, and I was so proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. You didn't say that when you did it. You didn't say I did a slightly better job. It's like you fucked it up. I did a perfect job. <laughs> I have to admit, she did a fine job, but I, I there was there was some worry of stripping the, scr- the screws, and so she didn't uh, object to handing it to me for the other ones. So I, did, I really <laughs> only did a really... slightly better job. <laughs> by the really by, the last cause... screw, I finally got it perfect, and I'm sure I won't use that drill again for another four years yeah. until I'm forced to be handy again. Until you're forced to, to hammer drill something. I can't imagine what possible situation would have you hammer drilling something into your apartment. That's I'd kind of what terrified. I was thinking. But he said if we, because we live in an apartment with concrete walls, that if we ever needed to punch mm. a hole in the wall to hang a painting or something, that this was the right tool for that. Wow. And so, Do you actually have concrete walls or some drywall? Yeah, we do. Um, I guess wow. between our own rooms, I'm pretty sure it's drywall, but between the individual units, it's like solid concrete, like a foot or oh, more of concrete. Crazy between the units. Oh, yeah, wow. it's fun to watch when there's construction as there so constantly is in Toronto. We have three humongous apartment buildings coming up on our street alone. One of them's like 34 stories or something. It's gross. So we have three of those coming up on our street. So we get to watch wow. those coming up uh, gradually over time and they all have a lot of solid concrete going on. Oh, well, there you go. You just justified getting a hammer drill because I was trying to, I was telling myself, I'm like, I have absolutely, yeah, no situation i can imagine myself needing to hammer into concrete yeah was it was it before the podcast we were talking about houses and building materials what the hell do you and yeah. i talk about chris we're we talk about everything but freaking video games now <laughs> i don't think we talked about how the quality of house building in uh in uh in toronto I guess not. Well, <laughs> now's now's our lucky time. I guess. No, that's as much as I want to say about that. <laughs> so welcome to the the Mike Holmes on Home podcast. <laughs> yeah, jeez, what the hell are we doing here, man? All right. Oh, so so you, uh, so you had three gaming moments, which you quick timed efficiently. Yes, yes, I kicked butt. I was in this like perfect, perfect like uh, Zen state of enlightenment. Where I was able to handle oh, all can, these ridiculous I'll situations. G- I'll give you a, I'll give you a Zen state, uh, gamey kind of moment. Um, this only applies to people who've heard of that uh, that game that's going to be coming out sometime this decade called Firewatch. Are you familiar with that? Uh, with that uh, maybe. I think it's called Firewatch. It's um, it's that game that uh, by the the visuals are all being done by Ollie Moss, and it's got uh, uh, what's that guy's name? He's a really, really friendly dude who used to work for, um, he used to work in Vancouver for, um, oh shit, what's his name? Um, on uh, on uh, something, Mark of the Ninja, did you ever hear of that game? Oh um, yeah, I did. Wasn't that, 
Oh, I don't uh, remember the name, name of the he guy. Has, he has a blog called North of 60 or North of, yeah, North of 60. Or above, no, above 49. That's what his blog is called. Um, uh, sorry, Sounds I can't remember familiar. His name right now. I do him know Mark of the Ninja of, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, him and a couple of developers all left their companies about two years ago. And they got together with Ollie Moss, who's the guy who does these amazing, amazing, amazing uh, movie posters. And came up with a game about um, a, uh, a fire tower watchman kind of person who radios down to somebody walking in a forest. And it's kind of along the same lines of, uh, of uh, what, uh, uh, shoot, what's that game called? There's other weird sounds. Um, hmm. uh, I can't remember the name of the game where you gone home. It's along the lines of gone home. That's what I was going to say. Looking at the screenshots, boy, is this beautiful Firewatch? Yeah, vi- visually it's pretty incredible. Um, I had a had a friend who went to GDC last year said that he couldn't tell if the game was going to be good, but it certainly had a lot of good physicality to it. Uh, mm. Looks very uh, yeah, looks very gorgeous still. So um, anyway, this. It just made me think of that. Uh, my girlfriend and I went on this long, long tour. Um, went on this long, long walk uh, up the side of a mountain, and uh, at the top there was a fire tower. And you know, you don't don't see a lot of fire towers, so um, you get to the top of the uh, thing, and there's just fire tower. There was actually there was actually somebody living there, and there was a sign that said, um, "This is a private residence uh, for the province." Please do not uh, disturb the fire tower watchman person, etc., etc., unless invited up. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to go bug this guy. Um, uh, I grew up with a family who did a lot of fire control stuff, so I had been up in a fire tower before. And I just thought, okay, let's get some pictures and we'll walk back down. Well, on our way back down, we were just about to leave, and this old guy gets out of the fire tower and he goes, hey, you guys want to come up? And I was like, are you kidding me? And he goes, yeah, yeah, come up. So we, we walked up to the top of the tower, and, uh, yeah, this, this old guy, probably 70-some years old, uh, maybe, let's say, late 60s, early 70s, he, uh, yeah, he gave us a little little tour of the top of the tower. It was pretty incredible. That's terrific. So it's like a forestry kind of a thing, I guess. Yeah, it's for forestry and weather management. They kind of do both. They, um, hmm. they keep a fire watch. It's basically they have it in the highest possible place so that they can see, you know, 100 miles in every direction. And um, they, uh, or well, not 100 miles, maybe 75, 50 miles in every direction, 100 kilometers. And, um, and then they just kind of intersperse these over the map. And uh, whatever is within their visual range, they report fires. If there's, like, fires caused due to lightning or due to campers. Um, and then they uh, also do hourly weather readings. And uh, they just kind of uh, update. They've got an anemometer connected. They've got a temperature sensor connected and all of the stuff. They send all of that information out to Central. And that's how your uh, weather reports are generated throughout the province. Is what, what is an anemometer uh, record oh, again? That's that, little, that's that thing that spins with the little cups on it. And it, it checks oh, the, the wind speed, speed and the wind direction. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, or for I, I keep forgetting myself. This is the this is the Square Waves podcast. It's that inventory item you need in Space Quest Three to break off. <laughs> you have you have to break it off that little weather tower on. Um, oh, what's the volcanic planet called? Ortega. Yes. Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's that doohickey on Ortega you need. <laughs> there you go. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, By the I way, was, while I was, I was looking for I was looking for images of uh, the game at first, and so when I look for Firewatch, I see images from the game as well as pictures of these Firewatch towers, and there's also oh. a Firewatch bumper sticker, and it says, Firewatch, really? you, you light it, we watch it. <laughs> that's a noble really line weird. of work. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of that joke's got to kill at the annual Fire Watchmen conference. Exactly. They sell a lot of those there. I bet. <laughs> so yeah, that was my Zen moment. It was just talking to this old guy, and he said he was been working with Fire Tower for eight years, and he it's seasonal work. He says the snow is eight to ten feet deep in the winter time, so he only comes there in the summertime to do it. And uh, yeah, he gave it. We were up there for about twenty minutes uh, or so, and uh, my girlfriend took a bunch of photos, and she snuck a photo of this guy. Uh, <laughs> As uh, as he was talking to me, I, I we were both too nervous to ask him to take a picture with us because he seemed like he just he just seemed like a really friendly old guy. But we didn't. He looked a little bit on the uh, on the hermitish kind of side, so we didn't want to ask for any photos. He's kind of reminding me of uh, you. Remember that guy in the beginning of Return to Zork, the guy who lives in the lighthouse. Oh my <laughs> God! Is that is that the watch some rye course you do guy? Watch some uh, rye course you do, or is that Booze Miller? I can't remember. Oh, I don't remember his name. I just remember that he's just a super, super weirdo hermit guy who lives in a lighthouse, and he's real eccentric. I think I think it's got to be the same guy as Bruce Miller. I can't, I can't remember. Hmm. And uh, I remember you pour out, you get him drunk by pouring the rye into the plant and killing the plant. That's the solution to that puzzle. <laughs> I'm sure Sorry, I gave Dave. up on the game before I got that far, which is not far <laughs> at all. I think that's like five no, minutes I, into the game, isn't it? I replayed the first 20 minutes of that game probably 200 times and never got any further than that. It's a really irritating, frustrating game. Like, I don't know what the hell it to really do. With the the only thing I like about of... that game is the presentation and especially the animated icons. That's that's all yeah, I it's... like about it. Those are awesome. I was just going to say, the animated icons were like, they're so unique. I don't think I've seen a lot of games that use that kind of thing. Yeah, they're great. I, I wish they had done that more often in, in adventure games or exploration games. What pissed me off was that Wizard Strobot, do you remember you get his face in your crystal uh, crystal ball at the very start of the game? He goes, yeah. I, I need, need a new battery. New battery. Yeah. And yeah. then you stick goddamn batteries in it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> I'll take your but word you for it. I don't think I made it that far either. Usable batteries. So I was just like, oh, don't, don't, don't make those kind of puzzles. So, I know. Yeah, so but that was my Zen moment. Was I, I was smiling the whole walk down the mountain after being like, it, it just made my whole week to... to See something very iconic, uh, a fire watchman in his fire tower and being invited up would seem like a very special thing to me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So uh, that was my that was my Zen gaming moment. It was kind of Space Quest Three meets Firewatch. <laughs> oh, so I have a special gaming moment this week too. As a matter of fact, ah, um, yeah. I I had the very great pleasure of hanging out with and going for a beer with oh, Joe yeah. Mastroni of the Upper Memory Block podcast. We hung out on Thursday. He's still uh, my heart. You missed Caesar himself. That's yeah, amazing. the the big cheese himself. Oh, he's such a nice guy. We had a great time. It was really uh, a lot of fun uh, hanging out and chatting with him. It, it was like we'd been friends for a long time. Very easy guy to get along with. You guys Very are like per- the two the two DOS podcast gods, both like conveniently located in the same city. I know, all under one roof. <laughs> the, Jeez, only, if- the only better thing could be if like Anatoly somehow lived in Toronto. I, I can't even imagine what would happen. Oh, I know. I know. It would be like Ghostbusters, the Keymaster, and the Gatekeeper all coming into one place. <laughs> that's, that's a very disturbing image. Okay, maybe it is. Let's move <laughs> right along from this. I, 
remember I did not appreciate the uh, <laughs> the depth of that image until I was about 15 years old. <laughs> I actually, kid, when I, I, I saw that movie in the theater as a little that. kid, my dad took me and I got scared right at the end where they turn into the big dog things. Oh, and I begged him to leave the movie theater. So we left the movie oh, theater really? with like 10 minutes to go in the movie. <laughs> Poor guy. So he didn't see the end um, of that movie until it was on TV, like years later. I, re- I remember being very confused watching, I think I must have been six or seven years old. I'm not sure how old I would be, maybe a bit older. I don't know if it's the start of Ghostbusters 1 or Ghostbusters 2, but it was the start of one of them, uh, the, uh, the I, think it's, I think it's Ray Sands or Egon is getting head from a ghost in bed. You see his oh, yeah. head getting unzipped. <laughs> and I remember being really confused. I was like, it's Ray. I don't yeah. really understand what's going on, but I'm not going to stop watching. <laughs> That's weird. I don't know how we got on this topic. Per se. Oh, right. It was my fault. But I uh, downloaded once the script to that movie. Oh. Uh, it was the last time I watched it. Uh, it was when my wife and I were on a little road trip and we saw it on TV. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if I couldn't sleep. And so I downloaded the script to it on my phone. It was uh, it was just a Google search away. And right. the script of that movie is so different from the movie itself because really? they had such terrific like comedy stand-up actors in that movie that so yeah. much of it was ad-libbed. And like apparently every take they like, ad-libbed Are some new serious? line. And so they just picked something oh, new. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's crazy! I didn't know that. I, it seems like it seems comes off very scripted and very well set time. It does, I know, but the script is wow. way crappier than the movie turned out to be. Like the ad libbing huh. saved that movie. It was a boring script. Holy shit! That's Amazingly, crazy. I I forgot that you know Bill Murray's in it. Um, how many of them are comedians? Uh, Rick Moranis is a comedian. Um, yeah, or at least a lot of them came from Second City Television or SCTV, right? Yeah, that's right. And um. That's kind of nuts. Originally, Rick Moranis wasn't going to be in it. Instead, it was going to be John Candy, as a matter John of fact. John Candy. Yeah, and... I, I think I knew that from somewhere. <laughs> this is so crazy to me. Instead of being the, the like a little nerdy guy that uh, Rick Moranis kind of played him as, John Candy was going to be this like over-the-top comedic German guy who had two big German <laughs> shepherds and spoke with a terrible German accent. And they cut, him, they oh cut it out because it was too silly, of all things. <laughs> Oh, that sounds, that sounds like it would have, uh, yeah, that, he might have uh, over, overshadowed the rest of the show. Maybe. Oh, Maybe. That's pretty funny. Well, anyway. So, um, how did we so get I... three, three? Oh, yeah, we were talking to Joe. You were talking to Joe. I was talking to Joe. Uh, yeah, so we went to this little bar uh, west downtown Toronto called the Get Well Bar. I'll stick right. a, I'll stick the link to the their website on the show notes. It was like a, a charming little bar with really nice character. It had... Um, it had like art on the walls and these like ornate design tiles on the ceiling and they were kind of like cracked oh. and weathered which kind of gave it this like old subway station kind of a feel a little <laughs> bit lots of tables oh. lots of seating um it was very busy and very loud but we still had uh right. little problem finding somewhere to sit they had these awesome ontario craft beers and we tried a stout and a bitter which were delicious and wow. uh most of all, they had uh, free play arcade machines and pinball machines in the back. And oh, so man. I got there about 15 minutes or so before Joe did, probably 10 minutes before Joe did. So uh, and I, they were they were all uh, ripe ripe for the the poking. So I I uh, went to the so back and to I I took a good look around. So I played two of the games before Joe came and introduced himself. I first played Dig Dug. 
Um, oh, man. I love this game. Awesome. Did we talk about this one on our arcade shows? We sure did. Yeah, I love this game. I've always loved this game. One of my first, earliest, most favorite games. It's and they covered this game really well. I remember. Oh, I remember everything but. I, mean, I know I'd know it if I heard it. I can't think of the music. And I sure as heck couldn't hear it in this noisy bar. Um, but just wrapping... Like, putting my hands on the joystick and on a button made yeah. me feel so good. Like, I was so elated, like, this childhood memory coming back to me. Uh, that was just, like, a such a lovely stand moment. Was the sit-down version? They were all stand-up arcades. Oh, okay. Was there okay. a sit-down of Dig Dug? Oh, it was a cocktail one, I yes, guess. Yes, it was. Yeah, okay, was now these were the stand-up. I played as a kid. Ah, so, you know, these were the stand-up coin-op ones. Um, gotcha. And they're pretty well-maintained. The, the joystick was a little bit finicky where you had to like put it at just the right angle to go up instead of left or right but it was it just felt so great to play this thing and having fairly recently listened to the no quarter podcast uh, episode about dig dug i knew about some of the scoring strategies so i was uh i was coaxing some guys to uh follow behind me and i made like walked underneath a rock and the rock fell on their head and i got a whole bunch of points for that (laughs) and i had forgotten that it's a pretty punishing game i can't get usually past the third screen it's really punishing because you're digging all these tunnels, but all your enemies can kind of like turn into ghosts and kind of go through solid rock until they get to a tunnel. So you kind right. of have to steer them towards a tunnel to make them corporeal again so that you can blow them up oh. with your bicycle pump. And so one thing that I had forgotten was that, you know, there's a finite number of enemies on the screen, four or five or six or so. And when you've killed all but the last one, the last one starts running towards the top of the screen and walks off to okay. the exit so that you have to really chase them down and plan ahead. Oh, Otherwise, it gets away right, from you right, and you right, don't right. get the points for it. So right, that right, was right. great. I had a terrific so, time with so that. So it was on free play. They're all on free play. So the other did one that you, I played... Did you find that that changed your strategy? Like, did you, did you care to actually win, or did, did that have, like, any effect on that? I just played, like, one game of each of these two games, so okay. I didn't really I didn't really get the chance to kind of formulate that. But I tried to do as well as I could. Yeah. Um... Like, when I'm playing it on uh, an emulator or something, and it's a real quarter-muncher game, then I don't care at all if I die or if I block or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, for, what, I, like, that's what I really find with emulators. They kind of, I don't know, they kind of discourage really hard competitive play. I noticed, for some reason, the arcade, even on free-play mode, is still still really, really difficult and, uh, and, and challenging. Yeah, that it is. Yeah, so if it's an emulator or if I'm at a hot dog restaurant yelling at some poor lady for change, <laughs> then I, I don't mind the quarter munching quite so much, I guess. Don't, don't tease me. Someday you're going to get the chance to do that in Calgary, and you'll end up doing the same thing. Oh, for sure. Oh, if I, yeah, if I, if I find a Simpsons arcade cabinet, I'm going to feed it my wallet, no problem. Oh, so, I will uh, have no problem taking that from you. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so the other game that I played... The other, yeah, the other game I played was Tetris, the arcade oh, cabinet version wow. of Tetris. Did you ever play this version? I uh, okay. So, did your version have two player on it? Like, was there two joysticks? Yes. Well, okay. Yes. Then I have played that version. In fact, it's the same place I played the Simpsons arcade game. My girlfriend mm. and I played head head Tetris, and I smelled her. Oh, cool. So I didn't. Yeah, we didn't play multiplayer. We just kind of grabbed our drinks and uh, sat right down after uh, after we okay. shook hands. But uh, I, I got a couple of rounds of Tetris in, and the layout was kind of strange. You'll have to tell me if the layout was the same on the cabinet you tried, where it was a joystick, and then the one yep. button for rotate is under yep. the joystick. That's oh, really strange. No. My, my button was on top. It sounds like they, 
you know, you know what the problem with Tetris was? It mm. was a uh, conversion kit, and you could right. stick it in whatever cabinet you wanted. So, uh. um, it, it was the, if the button was under, you mean it was like on the front, kind of near where the coins would go in? No, it was uh, on like the horizontal platform where the joystick was, but like the button right. was like where your wrist would go, ideally, I guess. Oh, that's a that's a bad spot. Yeah, it was a weird spot. Fun. I mean, it wasn't the end of the world, but it was just strange. I'd never seen that layout before, so yeah, I don't no, know what's up I, with that. Uh, oh, that's, uh, that sounds shitty. Yeah, I would have. Now, so well, I, here's a weird thing well. Was hmm. it just one button or was it two? It was just one button. I think most of the earlier versions only had one button. Exactly. So you can only rotate one direction, whereas like that's right. the Nintendo and Game Boy versions, you can rotate either direction. Pretty sure you're right, yes. It might yeah, have been the Game Boy makes, one that did it first. That makes a big difference. Yeah, it does. Now that I'm thinking of it, I think the DOS version that I used to play also only let you do it in one direction. So that's kind of the way it yeah. was meant to be played. Yeah, I want to say the DOS version, I want to say it used like that space bar or something to rotate. I can't quite remember. Oh, I or don't remember. At least the version I played. Yeah. I remember um, playing it in CGA and it had all this awesome scenery of Russia. Oh, is man. Is that the one you played? I love that one. Uh, that's, that's my favorite version. And it seems to be the one that's uh, most common. The one in the arcade actually did not... That's actually interesting. One I played in the arcade did not have any of the images that you'd see in, like, the Nintendo version of it. Um, right. All the iconic... Uh, it was, like, weird, like, balloons and shit. Uh, like, like party balloons and stuff. It was really lame. It didn't look very Russian to me. Oh, and was that the one that had, like, a space shuttle? Yeah, I think so. Although... Uh, a rocket or something? Wanted, yeah. Uh, well, doesn't the end of the Nintendo game actually have you shoot off into a space shuttle? Oh, that's maybe I'm getting com- confused. Yeah, the Game I Boy one did have a space shuttle launch. Yeah, at the very end of the Nintendo one, you you blast off in a space shuttle if you finish the game. Right, right. I think I saw that once um, in my whole life. That actually reminds me. Here's the, here's something for our listeners. You know, uh, <laughs> I realize we actually still have some um, who listen, who may or may not listen to the show. <laughs> right. Um, there's a really great documentary on Tetris. Have you ever heard of the Tetris Masters? Uh, sure sounds familiar. I might have seen some of it or all of it for all I, for all I know. It sounds uh, very familiar. I can't remember the, the full name of it. Something, something, the Tetris Masters. Um, was this the one about players or about Alexei Pajipov? Okay, uh, I think players. I saw this. And, um, it was really good. It was just about how, for the first time ever in, like, 2010, they decided to order uh, organize a world championship of, uh, of Tetris. And they have it somewhere in California, I think. Um... But I, but I like that they kind of got together this, these enthusiasts, basically. You know, they weren't competitive. You know, they were just people who happened to be really good at Tetris and, and really enjoyed it. And they got all these enthusiasts to meet for the first time and actually compare their skills. And it was like, and I really loved that they actually, each of them had come up with uh, an idiosyncratic vocabulary for Tetris. And yet when they all met up, they all could all, like, speak to each other. So huh. they called about... They, they call building wells. Have you ever heard of that terminology before? No, sounds f- familiar. I don't know. What, uh, I, what does that mean? I was blown away by this. I was just like, fuck, why didn't I think of that as a strategy? What you do is you're going to build a single well or a double well. It's like two different strategies. What you do is you build up all of your rows in big stacks, and then you leave one single, uh, one, uh, one block width row as deep as possible so that when you get the long straight bar you can sink it down into the hole and complete uh, complete a Tetris mm-hmm. and you build it all the way to the top as high as you can and eventually you'll get you know a bunch of those bars in a row and um, and I was just like shit I didn't know there's a word for that it's just called building well oh and I thought it was something else yeah that's what I do 
Yeah, and I was like, I was just like, why didn't, you know, that's such a great word. It, it was interesting how everyone had a slightly different terminology to use for that strategy, but they all, they all eventually, when they met up there, they just kind of agreed that this is called well building. Hmm. And, uh, and they had other was strategies. This, was this the movie where at the end, it might have been in the closing credits, they show, I think it was a Japanese guy playing and, uh, the blocks are all invisible. Like it shows you your block at the top, and then it yes. it disappears. Yeah, that's the hard. It's the hardcore uh, arcade version. Uh, sorry, Xbox Live arcade version. I think. Okay. Um, it was crazy. And they're playing Invisible Tetris. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so I think I have seen this movie. Yeah, it's it's a cute little documentary. It's not the best I've ever seen, but um, it's for anybody who's kind of um, like Tetris. I know. I know Anatoly. I can I can hear you groaning, Anatoly, at hearing Tetris for the fifth five hundredth time. But um, <laughs> it's um, it's just nice seeing what enthu- game enthusiasts are like. You know, there are people who truly love something, and they they are you know just like a, adventure gamers are, are willing to talk forever about how great the uh, uh, you know certain puzzles in Monkey Island are. Uh, Tetris players are very happy to talk about certain strategies for for playing the game, and. Mm. Um, my favorite part of that whole documentary is actually there's this one guy. Everyone would go for the well-building kind of technique. There's this one guy who had a totally idiosyncratic style of play where he would actually build, I would call them like overhanging caves, if that's a fair way of saying it. Um, okay. And he had this trick where he could, he could use his thumbs really fast and he could move the block straight left like three or four times in, in one second and mm. get the block. And then while he's while he's getting it to go underneath uh, kind of an overhanging cave, he rotates the block so it actually sticks upward and attaches to something above it instead of falling onto something below it. Whoa, I, I remember, didn't know that was possible. Yeah, I didn't know either, but if you get the L-shaped blocks, you can do it really, really well. Is this that the arcade version? Uh, that was, no, the Nintendo version. This hmm. guy's fucking skilled. Um, I remember he'd, he'd wrap his fingers in like um, in like electrical tape or something like that, so he could pull off his trick really fast. Huh. Um, so yeah, that was a that was kind of a mind blowing thing. And I remember all the other Tetris players kind of looking at him, thinking, "Like I don't even know how he does this." And uh, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, um, yeah, I think it's called the Tetris Masters or something like that. And I thought it was, uh, it was cute. It was, it was worth watching. Well, I'm sure I've seen that. It, it sounds familiar. What you're describing. Yeah, well, the, um, they have footage of the uh, original Tetris playing on the old computer, um, uh, Alexei Pashidnov uh, version on the, what was it called, an Oric 1? I can't remember that. Uh, I don't remember, yeah, the original. Green screen uh, monochrome. monochrome yeah, thing. the PC, yeah. Yeah, so, yes, definitely, definitely check that out. So, That's real special to look at, that one. So, Joe, how did you know, how did you know Joe was Joe? Uh, we traded, uh, we traded phone numbers and sent each other texts, and uh, I just told them, I tried to wear something conspicuous, I wore, like, long black, uh, jean shorts and, uh, this, like, uh, blood red, uh, uh, dress shirt. So, it's, I, okay. I always try to do that if I'm meeting someone on the internet, I try to wear something conspicuous. And then when I got there, I texted yeah, him and I, I said, I'm glued to the arcade that machines. that would actually work or not, yeah. Mm. I used I to have... Uh, one- one time I met uh, a guy from IRC. I think I told this story once. He was an army uh, He was an army guy, and we picked the worst possible place. We were like, let's meet at West Edmonton Mall. Oh, yeah, the biggest mall in the country. <laughs> yeah, for anybody who Yeah, the biggest mall in the country, probably in North America. At the time, maybe, anyway. I'm not even sure. Yeah. And, uh, and we said, yeah, let's meet by the, uh, the ice rink or something like that. It's got, a big, uh, it's got a big skating rink in the middle of it. 
And of mm-hmm. course, you know, there's 10,000 people. The skating rink is, you know, 500 feet long. There's no way you're going to see him. And then halfway through, I put two and two together. So this guy was an ex-army guy, so he might be wearing his fatigue. And sure enough, he was the only guy wearing fatigue for the entire mall. Oh, and uh, I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys enjoyed oh. some craft beers? You swapped some game talks and podcast talks? Oh, of course, of course. Lots of uh, he gave me lots of tips about different podcasts to listen to, like the Gamers with Jobs podcast, which I had oh, heard of nice. but hadn't listened to before. And I've uh, started listening to my first episode of it, and it's nice. It's like a conversational uh, show. Just, so far, all I've heard about is what they've been playing, and they go into some detail okay. about what they play and what they like, and it's chit chatty. Oh, cool. So that's kind of nice. So I, is, I it, have is to, it kind uh, of along the lines of backseat designer, uh, designer kind of stuff? No, it seems to be just more about the experience of playing these games, not quite so much about okay. making the games, although I believe that okay. he said some of them have gone on to uh, uh, have jobs in the game industry. So I, I have to get more into it. I haven't listened enough. But they have, like, a whole web presence. They have, like, a community and a blog and a website and all of that kind of stuff, too. So okay, I uh, will definitely I take his advice and sink into that. I longer-running podcast that I've heard of. Oh, man, the one I downloaded is, like, episode... 465 or something crazy like that. Oh my god. They call it the weekly conference call, I think. So I'll wow. have to skip around a little, maybe listen to one from a few years ago and uh, just see how much has changed or uh, whether they keep the same okay. format. Oh. Yeah, so and he talked to we, he talked about like Facebook community that he's in all about podcasting and yeah. uh he told a funny story about how uh they have very rigid rules about like people not using it as a megaphone to advertise themselves too much and so there's like <laughs> specific rules you can like is when you join the community you can uh provide a link to your podcast once and never again or else and so uh so, Joe so or other like people a, would is it like like gamer podcast or is it like a web No, I think it's podcasts of all sorts, but it has this like wow. real kind of soup Nazi mentality of a moderator <laughs> it sounds like. So uh, Joe crazy. said that he was once having a problem with his RSS feed and wanted to ask the community for help, but then he's like, "Oh, my RSS feed has my URL in it. Am I going to get banned for life if I, <laughs> if I paste this in there?" So he had to kind That's of tiptoe crazy. around the situation. I know it's a little bit crazy, but he said it was a a worthwhile community to uh become involved with cuz they uh talk about just kind of the ins and outs and the mechanics of podcasts. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, I remember so we just... when, Joe, when Joe had his show, uh, early episodes of Joe's show, I remember being really impressed by how he seemed to be, you know, he had ads from other podcasts running. He had, like, you know, he's very well connected within the podcast universe. So I was like, man, this guy's so organized. How does he pull mm-hmm. the shit off? Yeah, true and enough. Meanwhile, you and I are, meanwhile, you and I are, like, uh, are, are impressing ourselves by connecting to telephones and hearing our voices echo. I know. We're basically like throwing wet spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. That's kind of our podcast, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Cool. So you guys... Got a little little tipsy for a couple of hours. Are you guys going to meet up again? Is there going to be a second date? Oh, uh, yeah. I really hope so. I'm sure. Oh, we, we, we'd love to go somewhere not quite so loud, but it was a great little location. Um, the, the photos are awesome, which they have on their website, so I'll uh, stick those in the show notes. But oh, uh, oh, it was a real good time. Good. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good. So, Joe, it was great to meet you. Well, yeah. I couldn't uh, imagine a better thing. It's like, because, you know, so for me, it was like a huge inspiration for getting, um, getting you know, you and I getting square waves on the, on the road. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I, I've been listening to 
uh, the UMB cast for, oh, geez, oh, about a year at that point, maybe even longer. I, I can't really remember. And the only other podcast I'd really listened to regularly was, uh, I think I mentioned before, Retrobit. And that's kind of like the granddaddy of all podcasts about uh, retro computing. And, oh, right. Um, Didn't you also uh, listen to um, Brainy Gamer? Oh, you know what's funny? I, you know what? I did not listen to Brady Gamer. I was just friends with Mike Abbott, so uh, we ended up just e- emailing back and forth a whole lot uh, over oh, the years. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah, he was a really nice guy. But it was actually really funny. Uh, back when I ran my website, um, Brady Gamer and my old, uh, my old site, actually, we, we started at the same time. So hmm. we kind of tried to play off each other as much as we could. And hmm. um, I, I don't write, I don't do website stuff anymore, but uh, I, I I have the feeling I don't think Mike Abbott does it anymore either. I, I can't really, I haven't checked in with him in years and years. So. Hmm. Um, but no, my, my other big influence was actually, uh, shoot, um, the Retrolift, which I really, really enjoyed. It was all about the, uh, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, which is mm-hmm. you know, obviously dear, near and dear to my heart. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I owe, I owe Joe a whole lot. And the only other one I listened to, which might be might be of interest to our uh, podcast listening folks, is one called Experience Point, uh, which I was interviewed on, I think, very early on in their uh, in their running. And that was a great little show about uh, basically just two, two folks sitting doing a roundtable about current games they're playing every week. And uh, they, they've got a great sense for uh, committee time. They're like the Rose and Cranston Guild Instrument podcast. Mm-hmm. So. Now you broke up there. Which which show was this? Oh, sorry. It was called uh, Experience Points, and uh, it's with um, oh geez, it's been so long. Uh, George Albor and uh, oh god, it's been too many years since I listened to them. But yeah, um, Experience Points is, is kind of the classic critical podcast about uh, they kind of do a critical look at games once a week, and they've got a really great episode on Gone Home. Hmm. But yeah, I well, know I, everyone's got their podcast dancing cards full these days. I won't bother making any recommendations. I know, I know. Well, uh, in our in our uh, uh, in upcoming uh, issue of MPC, one of my pieces yep. that I wrote was a whole bunch of podcast recommendations for people whose whose dance card may not be quite so full. I did recommend I, a couple to Joe. One of them was the Games for Windows podcast, which is now defunct. Oh, yeah. It's from the guys who did the Games for Windows magazine, which used to be right. Computer Gaming World. It's just so, so hilarious. Um, they had like, I don't know, five or six guys at a time, sometimes on that <laughs> uh, podcast. It was really chaotic, and their personalities really came through. There were some people that were real troublemakers that were really funny. I, I, I laughed so, so hard. They had a great following. That was the first podcast I really got into. And the other one was oh, the Brainy great. Gamer podcast, which I think I like described as like a game design lullaby, because he's got <laughs> the most soothing voice, Michael Abbott. He's like the world's nicest person. He's su- oh, such a pleasure God. to listen to, and he's, he's very he's knowledgeable. Like, and it's like, he's like if, if you can imagine, his voice is his face. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how to describe it better. But when I first met him, I met him at JDC '09 in, in uh, San Francisco, and I, I remember I was invited to this blogger dinner, which which was a big deal in those days, and mm. I got to meet all these all these luminaries of the blogging community. And I was just a nobody. I got to meet like you know Lee Alexander and. Um, uh, uh, Mike Abbott and uh, N Guy Crowall. I never had. Oh yeah. Never. N Guy is a really nice guy, and mm-hmm. all these all these people were there, and um, and then I remember I was like, that has to be Mike Abbott. He's the happiest person in the entire restaurant, and <laughs> and I like go over. I'm like, are you Mike? And he like 
he just like breaks out into this like I'm the happiest guy on earth smile. He goes, "You must be Chris," and I said, "Oh yeah, man, I am." And uh, and it was just really really cool. You know, we've been emailing each other for years uh, at that point. It was so cool to finally meet face to face. Oh, what a moment! That's amazing. Yeah. So if you can imagine, yeah, he he is actually he is actually the happiest guy in Springfield. So it's, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, nice. He's an incredible guy. He's like I don't know. He always struck me as like halfway between like Gandhi and Moby. He <laughs> <laughs> looks really weird. Um, he actually looks like oh shit. Um, uh, it was from an FMD game I was looking at. He has this curly brown gray hair from this uh, actor who's in an FMB game. And oh crap, uh, it'll come to me later. I think it might have been from Seventh Guest or Eleventh Hour or something. I can't remember. But I just okay. remember seeing a picture of him. I'm like, wow, he really looks like Mike Abbott. Um, <laughs> he just looks like he should be like a Shakespearean actor or something. Great and I think he is, isn't he? Uh, yeah, I think he's in like English Lit or something. Yeah, well, he teaches he teaches drama and he oh, teaches, teaches like video game uh, criticism or video game appreciation right. or something like That's that right. at, at his university. Yeah, I've heard about he did. that. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure he's still very heavily involved in that stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, yeah, that's, I couldn't imagine a better recommendation. Uh, that's, I, I personally didn't listen to the podcast too much, but uh, I, I, do, I do know of him. He's a great guy. Oh, I've listened to every single one, and I highly recommend it, even though it's dated now, but a lot of the stuff he yeah. talks about remains relevant, so I, yeah, I totally recommend timeless, it. Yeah, pretty timeless criticism, um, the way Mike thinks about stuff. And, yeah. Um, he's, he also, and he's also a huge lover of Animal Crossing, so that's point in the book for me. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Well, we've um, been doing a lot of talking about other people's yeah, podcasts, haven't we? We've been a lot of catching up, yeah. I suppose so. Well, we have, so, speaking of catching up, last week, why was it? Oh, right, we were strapped for time last week, and we didn't get yeah. to our wonderful uh, listeners' voicemails and emails. We most certainly couldn't make that mistake two weeks in a row. No way. Let's, let's hear them. I, I, I've been waiting all week. I think we've got one from Akago, and I want to apologize to Akago. You're one of the two or three people I forgot to get a shout-out to a couple of episodes ago, because I, I rattled off so many names that came to my head, and I was like, no, oh, I can't forget about Amory at Actigo. It was like a couple of days later, I'm like, crap, I forgot about him. So, mm-hmm. yes, a shout-out to you, guys. I hate I hate doing shout-outs, because I always forget somebody, and I didn't want to forget you, Actigo. You're an important guy. I think about you often. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's put his voicemail on first, then, shall we? Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. Hopefully we won't have to wait to hear it, because I can actually figure out how to press play this week. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Yo, Squares! It's me, Amiyu Rakugo. Long time no see. I'd like to thank you again for your very kind words last week, and I'm always eagerly looking forward to hearing you guys talk about whatever for several hours every Monday. But I digress. I'm here to take you to a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, okay, maybe not that last part, but at the very least, I wanted to talk about my experiences with some of the Star Wars games I've played over the years. Now, I've been a fan of Star Wars for as long as I can remember. I love the characters, the mythology, the action, etc. But you know what the damnedest thing about that was? I barely ever watched the actual movies when I was younger. I mean, back then, I probably watched A New Hope once on a VHS tape that we recorded off of TV one time and that I could never watch again after that because the tape had degraded so severely that it became unwatchable after 3PO and R2 landed on Tatooine. Yeah. Now, I was a PC gamer throughout all of my childhood, so I was relegated to games on that system. One of the earliest 
games that we got was the Star Wars Screen Entertainment Pack that I believe you already mentioned on a previous show, which came with the LucasArts Archives Volume 1, and all of the background information and several of the screensavers included in that helped fill in several of the blanks for me since I barely had any exposure to the movies. Also included in the archives was a three-level special edition <coughs> of Rebel Assault. And yeah, I'm sure you all know how it was a technological marvel at the time with streaming full motion video and blah 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 blah, but seriously, the game's crap. You can barely control it, it's entirely linear, and it's ugly as hell. And yet its sequel has become one of my long-standing guilty pleasures. Though there's a bit of a funny story behind that. See, I was first exposed to, quote, Rebel Assault 2, colon, The Hidden Empire by Vince Lee, unquote, when I came across it running on a PC in a software store where it was playing the second level while you were on foot shooting stormtroopers. And somehow that was enough to sell me on the whole thing, so around Christmas time I asked my dad to get it for me. Instead he got me the X-Wing CD-ROM. You can imagine I was rather disappointed, though in the long run it turned out to be the better choice. Though to my shame, I have never really gotten very far into that game or TIE Fighter. Though I will not deny that the concept of a flight sim set in the Star Wars universe has a massive amount of appeal. Still, I did end up getting Rebel Assault 2 for my birthday not long after, which I loved, warts and all. It had awesomely crisp FMVs for its time, a tense storyline, and a ton of action. And I didn't care that it was insanely difficult or immutably linear. I was flying the goddamn Millennium Falcon at high speeds through mining tunnels while shooting robots. Okay, so it turns out it wasn't the actual Millennium Falcon, but a similar Corellian freighter. Somehow I bought entirely into the blurb on the back of the box claiming that it was the Falcon, and being as illiterate in Star Wars lore as I was at the time, I completely bought into it. I was a dumb kid, what are you gonna do? I just thought the Empire left it there after they captured Han or whatever. And I realized that Rebel Assault 2 still gets a lot of shit from gamers everywhere, and probably deservedly so, but you do have to give it credit for the massive, MASSIVE amount of awesome easter eggs all over the game. I actually was unaware of these for the longest time until my dad finally hooked us up with dial-up internet and I visited the LucasArts site, where they were all unveiled in great detail. Clearly, someone on the development team knew what they were making probably wasn't the highest quality and so decided to have just a little bit of fun with it, and credit to them for doing so. The Mystery Science Theater 3000 gag alone where all of the dialogue is replaced with sheer silliness is worth the price of admission in my book. I also have fond memories of another Star Wars game called Yoda Stories, which was a successor to another game called Indiana Jones and its Desktop Adventures. The idea was that every time you started the game up, it would randomly generate a different scenario where, playing as Luke Skywalker, you'd meet Yoda, who would send you out on a mission you had to explore around kinda like a Zelda game, fighting enemies, obtaining items, solving puzzles, and finally making it to the climax, which was a pre-made level where you had to use the items you had collected to finish up the story and then move on to the next mission, all of which would take you about an hour to go through. So yeah, interesting in concept, but after a few playthroughs you'd pretty much seen everything there was to see as every scenario boiled down to doing the exact same thing over and over until you got to the finale. Although, it did also have another great easter egg where you could meet Indiana Jones, and Luke would then comment on how much he looked like Han. Last but not least, I wanted to mention another game called Star Warped, which was kind of an unofficial parody CD-ROM game made by the same people who would go on to make games like Microshaft Windblows 98 and Pissed spelled P-Y-S-T, get it? What it entailed was basically a collection of bizarre and, frankly, poorly made mini-games and activities narrated by these two Star Wars dorks living in their mom's basement and they crack a lot of bad jokes and whatnot. The mini-games included things like a parody of Dark Forces where you were armed with a camera and had to snap pictures of Darth Vader in bed with Boba Fett. Yeah, really. 
or a you-don't-know-jack-style trivia quiz on really inane bits of Star Wars lore, or just weird stuff where you mix together two different Star Wars characters and get some weird pop culture reference out of it that went completely over my head because I was too young to get it, and also a lot of it was geared towards American celebrities and politicians, which probably wouldn't even be relevant anymore today. In short, it wasn't very enjoyable, and I shall never know why I ever felt compelled to buy it, other than the fact that it was tangentially related to Star Wars, but there you have it. Anyway, I could probably ramble on for another hour on how much I love Star Wars and the games made out of it, so in conclusion, I'd just like to say, Brian, Chris, keep being awesome, and remember, the Force will be with you. <laughs> Akigo, thank you so much. What a cool, what a cool voicemail. I really love this concept of him kind of having to fill in the blanks of the parts of Star Wars he didn't remember based on <laughs> scenes from a screensaver. <laughs> you remember That's the scene amazing. where uh, where Luke had to fend off the flying toasters with his lightsaber? <laughs> I love, I love how that. So, so that just explains something to me that. LucasArts Screen Entertainment really was an After Dark module thing because it had the flying posters. Oh, so I don't know if it—I don't know if it really did. I'm pretty. Oh. Sh- now was it? Yeah, it was an After Dark one. I'm sure it was. I think it must um, have been because it, I've got such a foggy memory about it, but I'm pretty sure it must have been because you know who else was even making screensavers at that point anyway? Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, that's yeah. Fantastic. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad that um, somebody finally mentioned talking about uh, Yoda stories and Indiana Jones and his desktop adventures because, yeah, you're right, Akigo, they were they were really tedious after you've done three or four missions because you realize that it's just the same fill-in-the-blank kind of, you know, um, uh, Mad Libs, uh, randomized terrain generation, etc., and, and, you know, uh, randomized item stuff, but uh, it was right. still really, I don't know, it's just a compelling game, and I wish I had saw the Han um, Solo Easter egg or Indiana Jones Easter egg that sounds amazing oh yeah did you play uh, did you play um, Rebel Assault 2 uh, no actually that was one of the games I didn't get until much later and by that point I had already <laughs> despite all of my raving about how much I love Rebel Assault I had already had my my, my hands burned on the stove with Rebel Assault so I didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't yeah I know I mean Rebel Assault <laughs> is kind of one of those you had to be there games I think it, it yeah, got exactly. very dated it, very quickly. We kind of exactly. lost our tolerance for that kind of a thing. Well, um, I did. I, I'm glad that he brought this up because I think I was intending to uh, to tell this story when uh, we had Joe around right. and, and talked about it, but I didn't get around to it somehow. So um, I was always a fan of the first Rebel Assault as well, and so was a buddy of mine, Joel, from high school. Um, uh. Somehow or other, we decided to buy... Rebel Assault 2 together. We both pitched in half the money, like 30 bucks each, and decided that we would just kind of share it between the two of us. It was just like Simpsons where they have radioactive man yep, number one and they try to share it between... Of course. What so, Sunday? And I, I, think it, <laughs> I think it ended pretty much uh, in the same way, too. Um, but So this was this game, I played it a few... I think I played it two or three times. I tried to play it the proper way at first, but it was really punishingly hard. Maybe yeah. not as hard as the first one, but it did have a lot of variety. Uh, thanks, Akago, for reminding me about the parts where you're on foot, and that's kind of like a rail shooter, which is a really cool, yeah. uh, a, a really cool add-on that belonged in that series. Um, so one of the interesting features of the options screen 
screen in that game was that you could choose how big your, I guess I call it like your area of effect is or how big your target oh. reticle is. So oh, wow. you, like in pixels. So you could say like my pixel target reticle is uh, five by five pixels. And right. so that means that if you were, if you aim at something and you were four pixels away, it would still hit the thing. Right. Um, now you're able to crank that up to something like to something like 80 pixels or something so that you could be like a quarter of the screen away and still shoot it. And I was fed the hell up with this annoying, very difficult game. So I just, just like, I want to see the whole thing. I'll just play it this way. So basically I like barely nudged my hand for like 45 minutes, just clicking furiously. Yeah. So it's, I, I saw the whole thing, and I, I seem to remember there being Easter eggs. I didn't, the ones that he mentioned uh, didn't sound familiar. Maybe the Mystery Science Theater 3000 one. Right. I think I might have seen that one. Um, but I, I played through the whole thing, and then I gave it to Joel for his turn. And so both of our memories, I'm sure, Joel and I, will get fuzzy at this point, because we somehow both accused the other of either lending or losing the game. Oh, no. It was gone forever, and I, I, I could very well be guilty of this one. I, I don't remember whatsoever what the hell happened to this thing, but we never saw it again, and I never played it again. But uh, my my time with Rebel Assault 2 was short but sweet. Oh, that's, a, that's pretty adorable. I uh, Yeah, tra- trading games with friends when you're... What, what grade would you say this is? Like grade 8, grade 9, grade 10? Yeah, it was grade 9 or grade 10, beginning of high yeah. school. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing to always trade games. I, I forever lost... Uh, what did I lose? I lost uh, a copy of, I want to say, one of the King's Quest games. I had, see, what the problem was, kids are not very smart. They'll do things like three-way trades where somebody's bound to lose something. Um, I did something really dumb. I traded, uh, shit, what was it? I traded a Game Boy game of some kind. I think it was called Gargoyle's Quest um, Mm. for a DOS game. And then the guy who I traded to traded that away for something else. And... (laughs) And so it, you know, it took like two, two steps in the chain of command to get my original game back. And through the, in the end, I ended up with a free copy of something. I don't remember how it, because the guy in the end just kind of lost my game or lost his. But I, I think I actually, I ended up doing well in the trading because um, in the end, I ended up with a free copy of I want to say a Railroad Tycoon, but I could have been, it could have been Test Drive Two. Um, uh, one of the two, I ended up with a free copy of, and it was pretty fantastic at that time at that time hmm. so anyway sorry um yeah sure trade, you tell a similar trade. story on uh, anatoly's podcast by the way of oh uh... god was june too <laughs> that's right oh, that's right that was, too. i wasn't gonna bring it up that's that's too heartbreaking <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry well i will i'm gonna stick that in the show notes for sure because that was a sure. a great story that just had a little bit of everything <laughs> I, I, I feel so bad for that. You know, you know, it's really funny. I, like that, that story I told in Anatoly's, Anatoly's podcast like two years ago, and yeah. it's still there is still like a, an ongoing like feud, blood feud between those two guys over this game, and they are never <laughs> to speak again. We went out for beer. Okay, just just an update for for Anatoly or anybody who heard that story on the podcast. Uh, go go now is a good time. Just pause this podcast. Go listen to some point in Anatoly's podcast. Me talking about Dune two and trading games. Well, an update two years later, and I think, you know, I've, I've done my best to patch up that relationship. Every couple of years, I kind of bring up, oh, so, you know, how's so-and-so doing? And, uh, you know, and, and this, we went for a beer with all the guys a few days ago, uh, our old group in high school, and uh, uh, everyone was talking, and his, this, this guy who, who, who burned a copy 
set a fire a copy of Dune to his name came up. And uh, my my friend uh, my friend's friends with him and I said, How's he doing? And and, and you know, he said, Oh, he's doing okay, you know, he's still single, he's still, you know, in the games and all this stuff and blah blah blah. And my friend, who will remain nameless, looked up as soon as he heard his name, he goes, Yeah, fuck that guy <laughs> and it, This and is it, how much it, later? It's, it's like a decade later. Years. It's been 20, twenty years. Twenty years since he, he set his copy of Doom Two on fire, and I oh. remember it was like instant bitterness and bile. And I thought, okay, well, he's still not letting that one go. And the worst part is, <laughs> I, I, I actually have like a replacement copy of Doom Two. I've offered to give him, and he's like, that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that, a that, that hatred still still goes on to this day. Oh gosh, that's bordering on petty. I hope our podcast is still going in like five years, so I can provide these like bi bi yearly updates on 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 a blood feud over (laughs) here. We will look forward to the next update. (laughs) Too funny. All right, shall we go on to our next uh, voicemail? Thank you, you, Akago. Good hearing from you. Thanks a million, Akago. Uh, our next one is from our very dear friend and uh, former guest, Francisco. Oh, awesome. What a treat this is. Let's go for it. Hello, Squares. Is that the correct name for your collective group? Anyway, Brian, Chris, hi, guys. It's Francisco, also known as Grunislav. Uh, I am leaving you this voicemail thing uh, in response to Chris's request for a hint on Willie Beamish. Um, you know, listening to your description, you sound like you're doing everything right. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to throw the smoke bomb and then use the, the wrench, the monkey wrench on the fire hydrant. Uh, it might just be a case, uh, case of pixel hunting. Uh, if you are able to use the, the wrench on the fire hydrant, he actually he opens it and washes them, and then you're supposed to click exit to run away. Uh, and the bit that comes after that is really ridiculous. Um, Willie Beamish can be a little bit fidnicky like that. If you think that's bad, there's a bit later on where you're in a kitchen and there's a frying pan and, yeah, it just gets really bad. Anyway, um, yeah, hope that helps. If anything, uh, (laughs) uh, just try and get through it. Uh, you have the right idea. You're on the right track. It's just probably a matter of clicking in the exact right place you know sierra was notorious for that sort of thing anyway keep up the good work uh, i still enjoy listening to the podcast and uh well yeah hope to to talk to you guys in the future bye <laughs> i had forgotten you would ask for that tip that's terrific you couldn't be more timely francisco because i've all but given up i remember there's this part where i i used the save stage to save load like 40 times in a row to get that hot spot and I just I'm like what am I doing wrong so I'm okay thank you I literally just need to pixel hunt the worst thing for anybody who's never played Billy Beamish um, let's say when games are made with modern adventure and game engines you can set the hot spot corner of the inventory item usually to the top left corner right or right. In the, you know in the King's Quest games they do something really nice in the FDI versions they put a little bright uh, red pixel or bright, bright black pixel in the corner, which kind of indicates, yes, use the tip of the finger on the on the hand cursor, or use, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the corner of the inventory item. But Willie Beamish, there's no indication on what constitutes the hot part of the inventory item you're using, so you're just like clicking blindly. 
add to that the fact that it's just like a TV version. So your um, your your mouse cursor is actually controlled by a controller, like an actual uh, joystick. So you can't actually move the cursor quickly. You actually it kind of just skips along at one pixel at a time. So no oh, matter yeah. what, yeah, it's moving really slowly. So maybe it's just the case that. Um, it's actually moving across the screen so slowly I don't have enough time to get the wrench on the fire hydrant. Shit. Um, that's an interesting huh. problem. Yeah, that's pretty um, irritating. Yeah, it's well, that, what, a, <laughs> what a cool What a cool thing it is, though, to have gotten a tip from one of our listeners. That oh, it's really, I, really like, awesome. I, I love it. It's like it's like so old school. It's like, except Francisco, I feel like I should have like traded you my super sub or pizza sub for lunch that or, or like a can of pop from the pop machine from the grade nine cafeteria i feel like i, I, I feel like i owe you so yeah that's you owe my hot one. wheels or something yeah exactly <laughs> or or like give you like the, the dunkaroos from my lunch kit <laughs> <laughs> oh my god thank you good friends awesome. and it was really oh, really good cool. hearing your voice again Yes, it was. Yeah, thanks, Francisco. I, I love also how uh, he's kind of wrestling with the mechanics of uh, of uh, <laughs> interacting with podcasters. Yes, I love like his it. podcast like crazy, the, the uh, Blue Cup Tools podcast that Francisco and Ben Chandler do together. Hi, fellas. But uh, it's kind of an insular podcast, I guess. They sometimes have a call-in guest, but it's uh, I don't think they've ever had uh, a voicemail. Yeah, that's actually very true. I never thought about that. They, I always feel like they're like, it's like, I don't know, interactive voicemail between each other. Like, especially on the episodes where Francisco is completely stoned from going to GDC and back all, you know, in the space of one week and he's living on, like, three hours of sleep and, you know, a, a, a ton of beer in his stomach still. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorites. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, well, awesome. thanks a lot, Francisco. That was terrific. <laughs> All right, well, we've got one more voicemail now from uh, Ryan Bernard. Oh, so let's take second. away Mr. Ryan. Oh. Hi, guys. Ryan Bernard calling you back. Uh, What's up? You there? Uh-oh, hello. That, that, that movie contact, oh. Ryan. Like, I'm still good to go. There you go. I can't. <laughs> That's funny. All right, you're back. You hear me there okay? There we go. There we go. I'm still good. I'm still in the, the... Send me off into the universe. I'm Jody Foster. Oh, good stuff. I like that movie. I read that book. The book was better than the movie. Yeah, But Jodie Foster's amazing. Yeah, I, that's, that's exactly my review in five five words. <laughs> right on. Okay, All right, so, so here's, who's our next voicemail from? Our next voicemail is from Ryan Bernard. Oh, great, Ryan. Can't wait to hear from you. Yeah, terrific to hear from you again, Ryan. Let's uh, go for the gusto. Hi, guys. Ryan Bernard calling you back. Uh, the timing of your arcade machine episodes was great because on Monday morning I came into work and there was an arcade machine stand- sitting there and some of my coworkers had a hackathon over the weekend, which is basically everyone comes in and works on a project. So this project was building an arcade machine. So there's a joystick and six buttons uh, for each player, two players. And um, you basically pick one out of uh, 100 games or so. It's running a Windows emulator. And... Um, just have fun. So this morning I kicked it off with uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that was a great way to start the day. Um, I remember spending my time in Pizza Huts. Yes, we have them down here in the United States as well. I know you were wondering about that. I'm in Washington State, so they at least have them here, and they, they are still here. 
Um, so, I, yeah, I remember playing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles there, waiting for the pizza, so it was fun to see that game again. I, I did have an arcade uh, story for you. It's nothing uh, too extra- extravagant or whatever, but uh, it is one of my fondest memories. Maybe not fond, but, uh, well, you'll see. Um, so I was at a birthday party for one of my friends, and uh, they had a little Pac-Man, um, uh, you know, arcade, arcade box there, and and there was a prize, so all the kids that came to the party, we all got one turn to play, and the person with the highest score would, would, would win the prize, and I remember I was the third to last person to go, so I had to, you know, we just run around and play with, you know, everybody else, and well one kid at a time was playing Pac-Man and their high scores written down by the mom in charge and and um, most kids uh, would only you know they couldn't pass the first level maybe the the good kid or two would get to the second or third level or whatever I don't don't remember how good other people were doing but I remember when it came to be my turn and I've never been like that good at Pac-Man I mean, I played it, and I had fun with it, but I was never good at it. But on this day, I was firing on all cylinders, and I got past level 1 without dying, level 2 without dying. I think my first death happened after uh, I had tripled the person that was currently winning their score. And I was getting guys faster than I was losing them, because you get a new guy after every so many points. And um, and the, so I was third to last to be playing, which meant it was kind of at the end of the party, so kids were getting, starting to get picked up by their parents, and I'm still playing Pac-Man for like, I don't know if you, it must have been, I don't know how long it takes, five minutes, ten minutes, I, I lose track of time, I'm not pretty good at that, but um, I remember one of the kids who, who still had a turn, had a chance to play, his mom was there trying to pick him up, and <laughs> I'm horrible. I remember hearing him crying, like, I haven't had a chance to play Pac-Man yet. And um, I'm not a jerk, but uh, back then, you know, I was younger, and I remember saying something to the effect of, like, oh, you can just go, you won't beat the score anyways, or, or whatever. So, you know, just rubbing it in a little bit, probably not the nicest thing to do, but anyway, um, so I remember the the mom in charge asked me to stop playing to let the other uh, kids get a chance, and I was, you know, all, all upset, because, well, what if I don't get the prize for winning, and she assured me that I would, so anyway, that's my glorious Pac-Man tournament victory, uh, I don't even remember what the prize was, I just remember it was a lot of fun, and, uh, yeah, so that's my arcade story, um, to shift gears really quick, when I grew up, I uh, had what I was calling an Atari, because it had the Atari logo on it, so, you know, that makes sense. But it wasn't the 2600 Atari. Uh, this one had a keyboard, disk drives, and joysticks. And um, so I had always thought uh, that it was a Commodore 64 labeled like an Atari. Like, you know, you buy a PC that was a Gateway or a Dell or whatever. Um, so I just figured this was a Commodore 64 that had the Atari label on it. But I uh, did some research today, and I saw that I had an 800XL. And so I was wondering if you guys can tell me what the difference is between a Commodore 64 and the Atari 800XL. So I, I seem to have all the friends that my co- all the games that my Commodore 64 friends had, and I, I don't remember if one game would run on both systems, but... Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering what the difference is between those two, if, if you guys know. Um, I know it ran basic. I remember that's where I learned how to program when I was three or four. Just, you know, I got bored playing the games, and so I pull open the Atari manual. You know, they got the basic, you know, 10 print, hello world, 
20, go to 10 kind of things. And so that's where I learned uh, programming, which eventually became my career. Um, so the other thing I was going to ask uh, was there was a game uh, that I had on my Atari, um, one of my absolute favorite games, uh, and I couldn't remember the name of it. But then as I was Googling, kind of preparing for doing this call to you guys, I, fa- I found the name of it. But I, I want to see if anyone else has any memories of it. Uh, the game is called, or no, well, I'll give the name in a second. It's It was like Choplifter, where you fly a helicopter around, you shoot things, and you pick up people to rescue them. But this one, you weren't just flying around doing that, but there were uh, like other helicopters that you would shoot at. You would fly underground, and you'd have to drop like bombs to clear the ground to go underneath it. And I'm doing all this hand gesturing like you can see it, but whatever. <laughs> um, there's like laser beams and minefields and things shooting at you. You have to rescue people, take them topside, refuel, take them back down. And uh, I think the goal of it was to blow up some generators or something and, and you can pr- progress further into the game. Um, I don't remember that much more than it. But um, yeah, so I, I couldn't remember the, the name of this game. It's been on my mind for like... 20 years, and every few years I try to Google it, and I can't find it, and then, you know, I mentioned in the last episode I my, I lost all my discs due to a flood, so I, I couldn't go to my discs to try to find, like, you know, like, look at the names on them or whatever. So, so today, while I was Googling, I found it. It's called um, Fort Apocalypse, and uh, I, I would love to know if you guys have played this game. And uh, I'd encourage you to check it out, because I know uh, when I get home, uh, I'm definitely going to be downloading it and trying it out again. I I, uh, remember just playing that game for forever. So anyway, thank you so much uh, for listening to my call, and um, love the show, and can't wait to hear what you're talking about next. Thank you. Bye. Hi, guys. Ryan. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. That's fantastic. Terrific uh... call. I, I'm so glad you brought up the Atari 400-800XL line. Um, mm. I, I Honestly, I don't know a lot about this. To be honest, I never met a single person who ever had uh, the Atari 400-800 series uh, computer. But I do know a little bit about it. Um, it was an 8-bit computer. Um, I believe it used the same MOS 6502 that's common to geez, everything. The, the Commodore 64, the Atari... Uh, the uh, Apple II, uh, pretty much everything used that 6502 or some variant of the 6502. Um, a bunch of arcade games also used the same chip. Um, the uh, Brian, did you ever have a chance to play with the Atari 400-800? No, I hadn't even heard of it. And um, now that I'm looking up this game, um, it was definitely a Commodore 64 Oh, okay. game, at least one iteration of it. So, to his question, do you happen to know whether there's some overlap between between uh, these two machines? To, to my knowledge, no. There's no there's no overlap. But the, the trick is, um, like, you, like they're not. You can't inter, You can't use the disks interoperably, as far as I know, because the Commodore 64 uses a very specific byte uh, uh, encoding scheme on their disks. The Commodore disk format is a really odd format that actually the 5041, 1541 disk drive on the Commodore 64 actually has a processor in it uh, <laughs> to actually help oh. uh, help decode and encode disks. And right. the Atari, I don't know much about the Atari 400-800, but I think um, the disk formatting, the partition formatting on the disk actually had less storage or possibly more storage than the Commodore 64. So they're very mm. different formats. 
But um, the tr- trick is, almost all games that were made for the Commodore 64 were also made for the Atari 400-800 because their uh, uh, chipsets, etc., were very, very similar. Um, I want to say that the Commodore 64 has a better sound uh, processor. It's got that classic, you know, kind of Commodore 64 sound, which is, I think it's what is it, three or four voice. Um, uh, I yeah, I think so, the SID chip. The SID chip, yeah, thanks, the SID chip. Um, the Atari 400-800, I think, has crappier music, but it's, it's better than an IBM PC speaker. And I do think that it has almost the same kind of palette and uh, kind of color uh, color capabilities as Commodore 64. So I think, let's say, those are on the same level uh, playing field, but I don't think you could ever use Commodore 64 discs in Atari and vice versa. Okay. I, th- I just know that, like, for instance, every... Every, like, King's Quest game, uh, the early King's Quest game, the AGI versions, all, always had, like, an Atari 400 version. All of the Ultimate games had an Atari 400 version, so there was a lot mm. of... Uh, there, it was easy to port games between those platforms very quickly. Yeah, yeah, I do seem to remember that on the old uh, Sierra titles. This Now that I'm looking at uh, pictures of this thing on... Uh, Google, it looks a lot like a Commodore 64 as well. It's yeah. like all embedded inside of a keyboard chassis. Exactly, exactly. And um, doesn't it, I could be wrong, but I think if you flip up the lid, isn't there a cartridge port on it too? I don't see any pictures of a cartridge port, but I do okay. see a picture here with a bunch of cartridges in front of it, so yeah, I'm sure you're I, right. Yeah, I think I, if I remember correctly, it, it had a, a spot for 8-bit cartridges, so it's kind of meant to... It's meant to be, you know what, uh, there was a whole podcast I listened to about it once. I want to say that it actually may have been compatible with Atari 2600 games, but I could be completely wrong about that. That would be amazing, actually. Very yeah. uh, powerful. That, that would be a great uh, all-in-one device. Yeah, I think it was meant to, because it came out quite a bit after, the, the, the like five years after this, uh, uh, sorry, the 2600. So I want to say mm. that they added interoperability, which is pretty crazy. That's quite something. Yeah, so if I, I, the, I don't know. That was our first... Actually, I think that might be our first question that we've ever had on Square Wave. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you. Well, and thank you, Chris. I was uh, crapping my pants thinking of what the hell am I going to say in response to this thing. But uh, thank goodness you're Encyclopedia yeah. Brown over here, so you handled that just <laughs> well, fine. I, I, really liked, I really liked the idea of the 400-800 because it was one of those, like, kind of cousins to the Commodore 64 um, <laughs> I want to say that uh, uh, didn't that uh, oh no no Commodore Commodore bought up Atari at some point didn't they? Um, I want to say Did that they? Jack, I, I don't know. I thought Jack Camille had bought up uh, Commodore at, or sorry they, they had bought up um, he's uh, president of Commodore. He had bought up Atari at some point when it, I I, um, I I could be completely wrong about that. Uh, you know what? I don't 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 take my word for that. I could be completely wrong. Um, hmm, possible. Yeah, possible, maybe not likely. Um, yeah, because yeah. Atari did get devalued really quickly around that it time. It did, yeah. I remember Atari got bought up by, like, Time Warner Interactive or something. And mm-hmm. uh, and they were trying to make a go of it, and then, then it crashed to the floor. And I want to say, and this is based on a book I read called uh, 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 Something the Rise of the Spectacular Rise and Fall of Commodore. And, uh, and Jack Jamil was the kind of guy... He actually owned and operated a typewriter company in Toronto. That was his thing. And uh, 
he, he was able to acquire Commodore, acquire, he eventually bought Moss Technologies, which you know, built the 6502, and he wanted mm. to vertically integrate his entire uh, operation. He was, like, he was like evil EA before there was an EA. And um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that just sparked a, sparked a memory. That's great. I'm trying to think if there was there anything else that he had asked of us. Oh, I loved his uh, his Pac Man <laughs> competition story. That was you know, fantastic. You know what's funny, Ryan? Um, I, I didn't have any experience having doing competitive Pac Man uh, with other kids, uh, but I do have this one specific thing. Okay, so if 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 you were the kid that kind of said, uh, you know, forget that kid, he doesn't have a shot against me. I was the kid who sit there crying because it wasn't my turn yet. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I have this very specific memory of being in grade two and going over to a friend's house. I don't even know who this was. It was kind of like your whole grade has been invited to somebody's birthday party. And I'll never forget this. Oh, man. They were playing Pin the Tail on the Donkey, which I had never played before. But I knew I knew I was going to kick ass at it. And <laughs> I, I just kind of, I don't know if I, I don't think I cheated, but I kind of knew how to game the system by by, you know, turning around three times or whatever it is. But I'm like, I can count three turns. I'm an idiot. And I remember walking over and pinning it really close to the, the donkey's ass. And then there was this other kid. It was the next kid's turn. And he was, I had, I, he was a dumb kid in my grade. He was a really, really dumb kid. And he wasn't like, you know, mentally handicapped or anything. He was just a stupid kid. And I remember, I liked him though. He was, he was just a, he was a nice guy, just really dumb. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. His name was, uh, oh, I won't be here. He was, he, was, he was not a very smart guy. And I remember he walked over and he pinned it straight into the drywall. And I started crying because <laughs> I was so embarrassed. <laughs> and I was so ashamed for this kid. I was like, like everyone else had gotten somewhere on the poster and he put it into the drywall. And I started crying, and the mom called my mom and told me to take me home because I wouldn't stop crying. Oh! <laughs> so I got I got like an early discharge from the army for crying at uh, at a birthday party. <laughs> I just remember being handed my gift bag, like with tears in my eyes, and like crying all the way home. And my mom was like, "Oh, just open." And I didn't understand what the gift bag was for. I didn't understand that you get like a parting gift like going to a party. So I remember. <laughs> I, I must have been in grade, maybe this was kindergarten grade one. I don't know how old I was. But, yeah, I remember crying all the way home, and then my mom kind of, like, quietly agreeing not to not to send me to strange kids' birthday parties anymore because I'm a too alien. <laughs> oh, <laughs> such it's empathy. Pretty, that's pretty pathetic. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. <laughs> uh, yes. So, yeah, I was, I was the kid who cried for absolutely no reason at parties for some reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, so thank you, Ryan. Sweet. Do we have a third voicemail? Uh, that was our third and final voicemail. Oh, we do, however... Third. Yes, we do, however, have oh, a have letter a, from Father Beast. Oh, fantastic. This is a good one. I've been I've been saving this for... Oh, jeez, it's been almost two weeks now since I got this. I feel oh, so boy. terrible. So. I can't wait to hear this. Oh, yeah, so here we go. Father Beast says... This is Father Beast, not Father Torque, though I did play Full Throttle on your recommendation. Good stuff. <laughs> oh, wow. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while, so I have a few things to catch up on. Uh, one, after reading my, th- my thrift store adventures, one of you asked, what was your greatest thrift store find? Oh, it yeah. took some thought, but I offer the following. 
Over a period of a year and a half across various thrift stores, I acquired the StarCraft CD, the oh, StarCraft wow. Manual, the StarCraft Prima Strategy Guide, the Brood War <laughs> Prima Strategy Guide, and finally the Brood War CD. That's the StarCraft Battle Chest acquired piecemeal, and it only cost me, let's see, $3 for the CDs, $1 for the strat guides, $0.50 cents for the manuals, $8.50, as opposed to the 20 bucks I would have had to pay for the boxed edition at, the, at a store at the same time. <laughs> oh, good That's man. That's amazing. I love that you, you keep, like, an internal count of how much stuff costs you for other beats, because I do the that's right. He can spend the, the, the remaining 12 bucks on other Prima strategy guides now. I, uh, number two, I swear that I got some of the Midcamia books by Raymond E. Feist oh. from general ebooks.com for free. But oh, I just yeah. went back there, and the ones that I've got now have been removed. Oh, you oh. guys had it totally right. The book series was set in a world that his group, called the Friday Nighters, used to do role playing oh. in. What you didn't mention was that if you wanted to join the group, the entrance price was to add something to that world, which explains why that oh, world man. is so rich and varied. Oh, I loved what little I played of Betrayal at Crondor, but was so intimidated by the combat that I never got very far. Yeah, ditto for me. Um, number three. Let me participate a bit in the arcade mania over the last couple of episodes by throwing out some of my favorites, which I don't think you mentioned. Star Castle. Never oh, heard of this yeah. one. One of the last and greatest of the vector games. Your job is to destroy a ship surrounded by three counter-rotating sets of shields. Loved it. Yeah. Sinistar. Oh, my, my brother... God. How did we forget Sinistar? Shit. I know, huh? My brother dragged me to a Chuck E. Cheese several cities away to show me how cool this game was. Astonishingly, it lived up to the hype. Mouse Hunt. I think that's what it was oh. called. It was sort of a Pac-Man type game where you play as a mouse running the maze yes. with cats also running around. I remember certain that power ups you do, certain power ups let you turn into a dog and eat the cats. The cool thing was a red, a blue, and a green button which you could push to change the pattern of the walls of the maze. Oh. I played this at a Malibu Grand Prix where I also played the only Cubert game I have ever seen, which had that thing which kicked the cabinet when the Cubert <laughs> fell off the screen. Man, him saying Malibu Grand Prix just just had a a, a memory rush into my oh, head. Where really? that was the first uh, first place that I ever went go karting. I think it was in oh. Florida. Oh, I and they also yeah, I had it as like uh, an American team from the Retro's podcast. That's cool. Uh, yeah, they they like made me a driver's license, a laminated one with my uh, prepubescent face on it and everything. I was so proud of it. They also had an they had an arcade cabinet of. Sega's Time Traveler, which was oh that laser disc game with like the three D holographic mirror, curved mirror trickery looking thing. Uh, that was like mind change, like life changing. Seeing that thing in best, the flesh. Craziest story for you about Time Traveler. Oh, go for it. After after this, let let Father Beast because I you got, you got Father Beast. You're just gonna love this story too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, the next one he mentions is Area Fifty One. Oh, I like oh, this one. Right. I don't like shooters on the PC, but I like this one. It's like some cross between Duke Nukem and Half-Life, but the actual <laughs> plastic gun in your hand makes a difference. Yeah, it does. Oh, I wanted to choose a good multiplayer also. Gauntlet was a big contender, but the prize oh, goes man. to Rampage. <laughs> love that game. Oh, I love Rampage. It was always good fun to let off steam by crumbling buildings and terrorizing people, but it's even more fun with another player. 
You would always agree to work together, and as long as you work together, the buildings come down very quickly. That would last until one monster accidentally hit the other, and the other hit back, and then there was this giant furball on the screen as they would wrestle. <laughs> Plus, when your hit points ran out, the monster would sit down and shrink into a naked human form and slink oh, off. Yeah, that's right. If, if your monster... <laughs> If your monster could grab and eat the human before the other player managed to fish another quarter out of his pocket and grow back to size, your monster would then give a fist bump after eating him or her. Hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's the best. I completely forgot about that. I know. I remember uh, being uh, somewhat titillated when uh, Lizzie, the gigantic yes. Godzilla lizard, shrinks down to a naked lady. <laughs> okay. Does a gorilla guy have a name? We called him Virgil when I was a kid. Which guy? Oh, the gorilla? Yeah, did he ever actually... It was uh, George. It was George? It's funny. Lizzie, some... George, and Rolf, I think, was the werewolf. I Ralph? Think, I think Ralph, yeah, you're right. Because it's so weird. When me and... I don't, I don't know why, but me and my friends called the, the monkey Virgil, and I have no idea why to this day. <laughs> That's odd. It must have been more like a weird joke for us or something. I can I can almost picture a movie or something with a monkey called Virgil, and I... Yeah. Oh, was that... You remember there's a movie with Matthew Broderick, Project X. Oh my God! Where was it Project X? They or teach, the Manhattan Project. I think it was Project X, where they like have monkeys. Yeah. They put them into like a flight simulator. That's right. Oh my God! It was from the early And I think 80s. that monkey was Virgil. I loved that movie so much as a kid, just because it had those awesome flight simulator polygon yeah. graphics. From oh the my 80s. God! I have oh, not that was seen that since I was like seven, seven years old. <laughs> me too, I think. It's just that name. That name just uh, woke me up. That's uh, great. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I love Rampage. Uh, 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 Father Beast, I played Rampage originally on the Sega Master System, which had an extremely good port of the original mm. game. And um, when I finally got to play it in the arcade, I was impressed at how close it was. And uh, I really specifically love... My favorite thing is the girl in the shower, and you bust open the window... And you can, oh, yeah. you can eat her out of her shower. And I was just like, that is the funniest thing on earth. I'd be in tears as a kid eating somebody who's, like, in their shower cap. Oh, and then you could, like, punch again and eat the bathtub and then That's spit right. it out? Exactly. <laughs> spit it out. And, oh, the game's brilliant. I was just in tears. I loved that as a kid. That was a brilliant game. Although it was, like, inevitable that you would lose. There was no way to exactly. play that well. You just yeah, tick and, down and tick down until you're gone. Quarter muncher. The, stu- the stupid tank would show up and start shooting at you, and you're kind of done for. Yeah. But that had a lot of character. And that was a three player multiplayer game. It really some, was. Some yeah. cabinets were, which was very cool. It's an amazing cabinet. All right. All right. He goes on. Uh, okay, down to the subject at hand. Talking about the Commodore 64 involves talking about my brother, who is na- who is much more knowledgeable than I am, and he's now a computer professional for a major packaging company. Sometime I'll tell you about all my Commodore memories in detail, but for now you guys asked about fast loader cartridges. Ah. The one, the one that we had was called Fast Load, and it was made by Epix. I don't know when my brother got this one, but we used it all the time. That thing was almost always plugged into the cartridge port. The way my brother explained it to me was that the Commodore was originally made to interface with tape devices, yep. although they had the serial port for later expansions. What the fast load cartridge did was orient the machine from tape to the disk drive. From my less technical point of view, it just made it easier. To get a directory of the disk, for example, you would ha- ordinarily type load, uh, quote, dollar, quote, co- uh, space, comma, eight. No, there's no space. Quote, 
dollar quote comma eight. And then after it did that, type list. With the fast load cartridge in, you would just type dollar and hit return. Uh-huh. And it would list what was on the disk. To load and run the first thing on the disk, which was typical for games, which took up an entire disk, you would push the Commodore key and the run stop key at the same time, oh, and there nice. it goes. I never had any games that it was not compatible with. If you were to hit the Commodore key and the run stop key together without the fast load cartridge in, it says press play on tape. Fail. And yes, it loaded faster with than without it. One and a half times, uh, one and a half to twice times faster. Okay. That's cool. Additionally, mm -hmm. additionally, it had some other features which which could be brought up by one of the function keys, I think. It had a basic disk copier, which we used as our main copy program. Uh, it would also format disks and do some stunts with directories, such as restore accidentally deleted files, since deleting didn't actually remove the data, it just changed the directory entry to inactive, or locking files from being deleted. That's neat, it sounds kind of oh, like Norton well, Commander. Yeah. Uh, but the really cool fe- feature was the disk editor. Enter the disk editor, and you are presented with this representation of a sector. The left two-thirds of the screen was taken up by these pairs of numbers in hexadecimal. The right third had the characters that those numbers represented. At the top was a thing telling you what the track and sector you were in. You could change the numbers in the hexadecimal section, which would then change the characters on the right. By playing around with this thing, I learned to hack in all sorts of ways. I learned that the directory usually started in track 11, sector 0. By reading the directory, I would see what track and sector each file in the directory was started in. By going to the beginning track and sector of a file, I learned that the first two pairs of numbers in that sector give the track and sector of the next section of the file. If I took up more than one sector, I could browse my save file in a game like, say, Questron, and find the place where it stores my attributes and change my strength, intelligence, and other attributes from their weak 0F, which is 15, to how about 64, which is 100 in hex. That's amazing. I I found out that if you turned up things too high, you got weird effects. Having a charm in that game really high, like FF255, meant that in the game, things cost a negative amount of money. Merchants would actually pay me when I bought food. (laughs) The... The disk editor was awesomeness, and I did amateur hacking of many a game using it. <laughs> so oh, that's man. all for now. It's past my bedtime, but you guys said you like my long letters, so enjoy. Father Beast. Oh, that's just oh, brilliant. That's Thank you very so much, bad. Father Beast. Oh, my God. That's such uh, cool stuff. You you have risen so high in my ranks, Father Beast, because I, uh, <laughs> I didn't get to hex editing until I was already comfortably, let's say, in the Windows 3.1 era. I, uh, yeah, I, me too, or later. Yeah, I, I, I never really, I never thought or knew you could hex edit on my older systems like the Sandy Trash 80 or uh, or even my 286. Um, I knew that there were probably programs, oh man. So all I can say, Father Beast, is like, if you were able to manually hex edit Questron, why on earth didn't you just max out all of your stats? With, I think the name of the program was called Cron Edit for Betrayal at Crondor. <laughs> You, can, you right. can just max out your stats in that game, and you can breeze through it, and honestly, it, it it does not ruin or affect the game in any sort of way. I think hex editing is it's just the way to go with Betrayal at Condor if you, don't, if you want to Ooh. just breeze through the game really quick. That's good to know. Yeah, I keep that in mind, because I'd love to see that game through. I, I don't know if it comes with the GOG release, but I remember 
in grade 11 getting, uh, uh, I, my friend gave me Vitrelic Condor on disc because I didn't have, uh, he didn't have the CD version. And I remember one of the first things I did was I went to the local university, my, well, my mom went to university, and uh, I don't know how I found it. I want to say it was on Happy Puppy. Do you remember Happy Puppy? Oh, yeah. I used to visit it all the time. Yeah, I think Happy Puppy actually had uh, Cron Edit, I think it was, a, or Cron Cheat, one of the two. And I remember downloading that. It was like 50K, and I took it home, and I remember blowing my buddy away because I had maxed out all my stats. <laughs> so, oh, that's now, an awesome email. Now that I'm kind of thinking about it, because I do remember playing with some various cheat engines. I mean, the first one I probably ah. ever played with was the Game Genie on the Nintendo, which yep. came with, like, a book of predetermined cheats that you could type in, and, like, it would have the serious cheats where it would be, like, give yourself exactly nine lives, or freeze the number of lives <laughs> that you have. And then it would have some wacky ones, which would be, like, turn all the Marios into Luigis, or turn all yeah, the exactly. Turtles into Goombas, or stuff like that. Um, but I'm kind of thinking that I must have played with some other, like, memory value freezing software in DOS. And it was oh. the kind of thing... Was it in DOS? I seem to remember some, like, TSR application that would actually let me, like, almost like multitasking. I would press a keyboard combination and it would switch oh. the full screen application over to the uh, memory uh, state freezing application. Some That's sort of beautiful. a cheat engine, where it would be like, type in the value of the number that you want to change, and it right. would be like the number of lives, and I would say, I have five lives. Then I would die, and then it would say, okay, type in the value of the the variable now, and I would say four, oh. and it would narrow it down to like six different values. And Holy then I would crap. die again, it would say, type it in again, and I would type three. That's and it would uh, narrow it down to one value, and it would allow me to then either freeze or uh, set the value of that variable. I'm positive now that I'm thinking of it that I That's did like this for brilliant, DOS. That's like a brilliant Sherlock Holmes deductive way of, 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 it's like an automatic, it's like, it's like having, having a programmer sitting, sitting at your right seat helping you through uh, cracking a game. Yeah, it is. Like a, yeah, like a robotic debugger sort of a thing. Yeah. And this was not uncommon. They later added this kind of stuff to maybe both the Nintendo and Super Nintendo emulators for Windows. There was one I think called Nesticle for the for oh, Windows ninety five. Yes. That was a that was an NES emulator. Oh, and I must have been Windows ninety five because I remember even emulating Game Boy for quite some time took a, a pretty powerful CPU if you didn't want to play it like right. a slideshow. Right. But uh, yeah, and then those kind of went out of vogue. I must have. I think Windows three point one was probably about the last time that I found a PC game. Uh, memory uh, value editor or freezer. My, my experience so that, was uh, that hmm. the, the last time I used, did some serious text editing was actually the somebody I, I had spent, I think it took me five years to track down the Ultima Online pre-alpha client, um, which was a big find hmm. because no one on the net had it. And I finally contacted this, this guy over um, the Ultima Dragon news group. Uh, I think it was like alt.alt.com rec dot, you know, one of the alt uh, hierarchy things, and this guy got back and he says, you know what, um, he's like, that, that client is like 13 years old, but I'm pretty sure that I have it stored on a DAT cave in my closet somewhere. And <laughs> it was unbelievable. The guy, um, the guy spent like a week tracking down a, DAT, a tape drive, like a, an old Colorado 250 meg backup drive, 
and mm-hmm. he pulled it off, and sure enough, the data was good, and it was like this big thing. I, I posted it somewhere, and this other programmer guy by the name Folko, um, she's a German guy, he created a whole server emulator by doing packet analysis on the client. Um, wow. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. This took the, keep in mind, this took me about two years to do. And then, um, two years later, um, it came down to, uh, we needed to repoint the client to the new IP address of his emulator. So 127.0.0.1 or local host. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was so proud of myself. I went into the, uh, Ultima Online pre-alpha client with a hex editor for Windows and, uh, and, and changed the values by hunting down the, I think the server was uh, uh, www.owo.com. Ah, does anybody remember that? Origin used to have a website called owo.com, Origin World Online. And, oh, uh, I don't remember that. Yeah, they didn't last for very long, maybe three or four years before they switched it over to origin.ea.com. And um, mm. I was very proud of myself for changing that value to repoint to the new IP address. And, uh, mm-hmm. oh man, that was, that was, that was a big deal for me. It was my first real hex editing experience, I would say. Oh, that's great. Did I do hex editing? I seem to remember also playing some game that needed a manual lookup where it would give ah. you a question and you had to type in the answer and lucking out because both the questions and the answers were in a table inside of a yeah, binary yeah. file that I could view with the hex editor. I wish I could remember the name of the hex editor software I used to use in DOS. Was it in DOS? It might have been in Windows 3.1 already, actually, and it put uh, wow. the two values side by side, the hex and the de- and the decimal, just like uh, Father Beast describes. That's amazing. I was always so impressed ago. by people who could read hex. There were some people who wouldn't even need the character values on the side. They would actually just be able to look at the hex and see characters doing pretty crazy stuff. I guess so. You just have to be familiar enough with it, like a substitution cipher, I guess, to recognize what patterns of hex uh, translate to, having exactly. seen it before. Um, oh, before we go to uh, the next little bit, you had a, a story about Time Traveler. Oh, thank God you brought this up. So, um, this happened about, oh, I don't know, 10 months ago. Um, I told you I was into repairing and um, uh, uh, rebuilding original, uh, restoring arcades. Well, yeah. there was a Tron cabinet for sale. Um, and, and anybody who knows arcades remembers the Tron cabinet because it's... Oh, the joystick. Oh, my God. It's like it's, it's got a neon blue joystick and everything's done in Tron pinstriping, pinstriping, which glows because there's a black light built into the cabinet. And um, mm. it's just an incredible cabinet. Even if the game itself is not my favorite game, the cabinet is just, like, just godly. And... Um, so I got really excited about this cabinet. And this guy lived about an hour and a half away, so I drove all the way up there with my truck to go buy this cabinet. And I get there, it's really late at night, and I'm in an unfamiliar small town. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing. And this is literally the first cabinet I bought to restore. So I literally don't know my ass from you know, a hole in the ground. And um, this guy waves me over, and he goes, waves me over, goes, go, go, go around back, go through the alley. So I go into the alley, and I pull up, and there's two broken down cars in the back of this guy's yard, and I'm like, uh, this is looking a little sketchy, and I thought, okay, no big deal. If I get this guy rips me off, who cares? It's only 100 bucks. <laughs> so, I go up, and he shows me the cabinet, and I say, oh, well, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Fantastic. So he starts helping me load, and I said, oh, so are you into arcades? And the guy just, like, 
all of a sudden says like kind of like smiles at Benny's like well you could say that and I'm like oh are you like a serious collector he's like uh he's like I'm more into specialty uh, arcade games I don't collect everything I'm like oh okay and then he goes to me do you want to come in and I said uh okay and and it's just a dark house there's nothing on there's no lights on there's no lights in the yard and then he walks over to this huge white box that's the only way I can describe it. It's the size of uh, a small, uh, a small like, uh, uh, I don't know, a Ford Windstar van. And, it's, and he goes, he looks at me, he smiles, and he goes, ah, ah sorry about this. Uh, it's going to make some noise. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of power around here. And then he, he walks over, and he starts reefing on this pole cord. And I realize he's starting a generator, except the generator is mm-hmm. the size of a minivan. And, wow, we Yeah, I'm like, what the hell's going on? And then he it kind of chugs to life, and it's this massive industrial-sized diesel generator. And all of a sudden, all of the lights in the yard come on, all of the lights in the house come on, and I'm like, okay, this is really weird. <laughs> and uh, I follow the guy in, and he goes, oh, well, sorry, I shouldn't say, all the lights in the yard went on, no lights in the house went on. So we hmm. walk over into this house, and this guy, uh, he goes, you have a light on your cell phone because I can't get the lights working in the house. And I'm like, oh god, I mean, this is like, this is like, like a bad horror movie. I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna find my body on the side of the river in a suitcase six years from now. And uh, this guy, you know, I I walk ahead of him, and he's walking behind me, and I'm like, okay, well, there's the first rule: never let them walk behind you. And uh, right. you know, he's probably, you know, taking his hatchet out of his backpack right, as, we, as I'm walking up the stairs with this little tiny light. And he goes, yeah, yeah, just go in the kitchen over there, and uh, uh, I'll show you where the games are. I'm like, you know, this is, this, is, this is getting bad now. This is the guy who's like, hey, kid, want to go see a dead body? And, like, uh-huh. I get inside, and it's this dark house, and sure enough, there's a bunch of arcade machines. There's, like, 15 of them. They're all on the main floor. He has nothing in the house except a few broken chairs and, a, uh, <laughs> like, a dining table that's in pieces. There's nothing else to speak of. And he goes, yeah, this is my arcade house. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, well, this is the house where I put all my arcade machines. I don't live in here. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? And, he, and this guy looks kind of disheveled. Like, he looks like he could be a bum part-time. So I don't really know, you know, what's the story about this. Like, maybe he really does live here. It's too ashamed to admit it. But there's, like, there's, okay, so here's the games he's got. He's got a 720, if you remember that game, which is a skateboarding game. He's yeah, got, yeah, the sequel to 360. Yeah, and uh, he's got... Um, Something like that. He's got uh, Paperboy, which is pretty impressive to see. It's a, oh, with the handlebars. The handlebars on the arcade. He's got... Um, and, I, and, and all of a sudden he, he goes, yeah, the reason why I run the power is because these machines suck up so much juice when I turn them all on. And uh, and, he's a, and then he leans towards me. He's like, yeah, and I haven't paid the power bill in a few years, so I have to, I have to come up with my own solution. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> But it's just, it's just surreal. And, and all, all of a sudden, all the machines kick on. There's like 15 machines running, making a bunch of noise. And he's got a really weird one called, uh, oh, Junior Pac, or Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man Pinball, which was really weird. It was, uh, or maybe hmm. it's called Junior Pac-Man. It was a pinball Is this game. the one that was a pinball machine that had a Pac-Man yes. game on the electronic sign? Exactly. There's a Pac-Man game. I think my grandfather had this. Whoa. Man, yeah, I th- I'm sure my grandfather had that. Oh, crap. If he would have kept that, that thing's worth a fortune. 
And it is. That's a really rare one. Yeah, he, and he was like, yeah, I collect arcade games, but I only collect really rare stuff. I'm like, wow. And then he pointed over, here's, the, here's where the story finally goes, to this big, big white machine covered in a tarp. And I'm like, there's only one machine that can be. I'm like, is that a Sega time traveler? He's like, how did you know? I'm like, I'd recognize that white plastic frame from anywhere. I'm like, I, I know, have, it looks like a hot tub, sort of. Yeah, exactly. It looks exactly like a hot tub. And for anyone who hasn't played this, it is, it is, it is the first holographic game, and I'm doing air quotes, holographic. Um, <laughs> the guy explained Father Beast, um, and you, hopefully anybody else in our games will appreciate this. Um, do you happen to know how time traveler actually worked? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Something with a curved mirror and a, yeah. a, a CRT monitor facing upward and upside down. That's exactly what it was, with a massive laser disc machine mounted underneath. Mm. And um, so yeah, pretty ingenious. Yeah, it, it, was, it gave you a pseudo holographic projection onto a little playfield. But I think the playfield had like a little cube or a triangle on it or something like that, uh, a pyramid mm-hmm. kind of this uh, playfield. And Time Traveler was this really weak, terrible uh, 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 laser disc game where these characters could run on. And I remember I'd always play this mm-hmm. this cowboy and this, this this Indian would run on the screen and stab me in the back. I die like you know, and I spent oh. five bucks in thirty seconds. Yeah, it was so cheap. It was a really shitty game. Yeah, it was terrible. But uh, the machine itself cost about ten or fifteen thousand dollars. And I seem to remember this machine charging you a dollar for it, what would always amount yeah. to like forty seconds of gameplay. That's exactly it. And uh, yeah, and use a parabolic mirror to reflect the Sony CRT monitor, the Trinitron monitor, right up mm-hmm. onto the playfield and. The guy was but it really it. did look like they were floating in midair. The they images. really did, it yeah. They, they looked kind incredible. of two-dimensional. Like, they looked very Star Wars chess, kind of, uh, the Star Wars ch- uh, chess game in the movie. But it, it looked mm. pretty legit. Oh, yeah. And um, I don't know. And uh, I remember just being, like, so convinced I was gonna, this is going to be the place I die. And it turns <laughs> out this guy was, like, the nicest guy on Earth. And he offered, he said, yeah, anytime you have broken arcade machines, just bring them to my house and I'll fix them for free. The guy was. Oh, like, that's so cool! Oh, he was like the nicest guy, and he's like, "Hey, tell you what, in like one month, I'm going to have my uh, town Halloween party. He's like, the whole town's invited to come to my arcade uh, house, and he's like, I decorate the whole thing and have like a haunted house in the basement of the arcade upstairs. Do you want to come?" <laughs> I was just like, "Holy crap!" I'm like, and I, I, I almost let it slip. I'm like, I, and I thought you were going to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I man, I've decided right now. Whenever. Whenever I grow up, I'm going to get me an arcade house. Yeah, I <laughs> it's, it's settled. Of, you know, the thing to do. This you guy's just, my hero. You just buy a separate house and, and invite random strangers who buy your crap off the GG to uh, you know, exactly. come in and check your, your, your darkened, check out the darkened hole. <laughs> that's a good way to make a living. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, oh, kudos great. to that guy. He, he really helped me out on my first arcade purchase and helped me get that drawn up and running. Oh, what a terrific story. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, pretty weird, eh? So, uh, yeah, I wanted to go back someday and, like, just, like, do, like, like a documentary interview with the guy. Because of all the arcade yeah. people I met, he was hands down the weirdest and the nicest. That's great. That is so fascinating. Uh, yes, That's so fascinating. thank you, Father Beast, for bringing that memory back. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, totally, totally. Thank you very much, Father Beast. Great letter. Um... All right, to wrap things up in terms of correspondence, uh, we got a late submission oh, from yeah. our dearest of dear friends, Trolls, 
um, for uh, the MPC magazine. So uh, he so heartbroken that he couldn't get into the last issue. It couldn't, but we're going to give it its moment in the limelight. Oh, but before I do, so I get this email from Trolls, yes. and the subject of the email is Confessions of a BSD. And so I'm like, okay, Trolls, are you, like, into bondage and sadomasochism and domination or something, and you're about to tell me your deepest, darkest dungeon master? <laughs> so, luckily enough, BSD is... <laughs> I know. So luckily enough, BSD, as all of our listeners ought to know, is uh, the uh, acronym for the uh, podcast he has with... Oh, um, 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 Designer. <laughs> yes. Uh, Fred Olson, that's yes. his name. Backseat Designers, which is a terrific podcast about uh, adventure game uh, design and criticism. Um, so, <laughs> Confessions of a Backseat Designer is the name of his article, and I shall read it here, herein, and forthwith, and all those other old-timey words that, for some reason, slipped out of my mouth. Confessions of a Backseat Designer. You may wonder why I choose to sit down and tell these tales of woe to you, dear purve- purveyor of filth and decrepitity. Decrepidity. Thanks, buddy. Decrepity. Is that a word? For for you, as you read these words, know that I have infected you through the sheer power of the written word. Infected as a virulent disease with the knowledge that the... With the knowledge that the knowledge I'm about to impart upon you will forever change who you are. Also, I just gave you diabetes. Have fun with that. (laughs) Thanks, trolls. (laughs) That's in not those dark, funny. I might actually have diabetes, trolls. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, thanks, pal. <laughs> in those dark and dreary, stormy nights of Scandinavia, sat I, once with no chin nor pubes to shave, and in a state of blissful ignorance, dreaming of the day when I would be able to craft and create such wonders of the electronic world that the world may had, may have never seen, or maybe they had, but that, but of that I cared not. Then, years later, when it became agonizingly obvious that I had neither the talent nor creativity to actually produce anything worthwhile on my own, I turned my sights to that avenue which most failed artists choose to assail their surrounding society with. Critique. Indeed, I became a critic of those creative souls around me. On the surface, a helping hand full of, full of well-meaning, well-means and gentle caress, but secretly of scorn and envious bile. My compatriot I lured into my web with the blinding promises of fame, wealth, and a feeling of benevolent superiority. Poor fool. What he may have become had he not joined me on my crusade to destroy the very fabric of what I once held so dear. Together, we have embarked on a crusade of endearing self-destructiveness, for while he may still retain fondness for the art which we skewer, his illusions that my heart may not be cold, black, and devoid of affection will, will, once the penny drops, be his undoing. I have planned this all along. There is no one to stop me. My seeds of sickness are already spreading. I sign this confession in blood. Someone's, I don't care whose hoping that no one will read this and I won't accidentally put it in an envelope and mail it to some dumbass Canadians who might put it in some photocopied physical publication and send it all across the globe. I mean, I'm not stupid or anything, just bitter. <laughs> Thanks, trolls. Oh, man. Thanks for the I diabetes and the pubes. Made it into the NPC negative one. That would have been the perfect closed-out oh. article. Oh, shit, really would. Shit. 
What a shame. He sent it to us, like, I don't know, four days later or something. Just barely missed it. What a shame. But uh, thank you so, so much for taking the time to not only uh, not only write this, but to, to get me to read it out loud. I feel I feel diabetic and dirty. <laughs> I love that you read it in your best... Uh, um, the, uh, oh, shit. It's a... That was like both the Raven Nevermore. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe-esque oh, uh, po. kind of voice. Yeah, that, remember the Simpsons where... Uh, um, sure. What's his name does it? Um, shit. Uh, I can't remember the name of the actor. Um, oh, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. Yeah, all I could imagine was James <laughs> Earl Jones reading that. <laughs> wow. I didn't even mean to do a voice. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> oh, beautiful. That's great. <laughs> well... What else have we got, dude? Well, we kind of like didn't do a topic today. You you had something you wanted to tell about, didn't you? About uh, dial-up BBSing days or something? Yeah. Um. Right, well, see where this goes. I thought you know one of the articles or one of the um, sorry one of the topics I wanted to do so long is just talk about what it was like being on the early web or having trying to get early internet access in the mid '90s or early '90s. That depends on you know where you came from. I know certain countries had internets before other, <laughs> had internet had internet before other countries. Um, mm-hmm. I know that in my case, I was kind of a weird special special snowflake because my mom had access to the university um, and that meant that the university had access to the web way before anybody else did. You know, there was no, you couldn't buy Excuse me, you couldn't buy commercial uh, internet access until basically the universities had kind of opened that up to uh, commercial sales. So in mm. my memory, the first time I might have been on the web, or sorry, the web, I want to say the internet, I can't confuse the two, I can hear somebody <laughs> slapping me. Um, the first time I was on the internet, I think, was 1990 or 1991, uh, which is really, really Whoa. early on. And I was really, really lucky. But kind of, I don't know. I thought we could go back and forth and see if we could spark any memories of your first, uh, your first dial-up experience, or perhaps uh, LAN experience getting on the net. Do you happen to remember uh, the first time you even saw it? Let me see. Um, well, I can't remember whether I've already told the story of my first email address, which was with TVO. Dot org, which is TV, right. like the Ontario Television uh, Public Access right. uh, Network. They, I paid twenty or twenty-five dollars a year for this wow. email address. They were running something called a first-class BBS oh, first class client. Was, this first, was like first-class was a Macintosh-based uh, system. Oh, was it? I it could was. believe that because it was uh, in the days of. Uh, text textual uh, BBSing That's for right. dial-up stuff. Um, Maybe the fanciest graphical stuff you would ever see was the RIPTERM BBSs, <laughs> which had these awesome vector graphics and uh, some structure behind them. But yeah. it was pretty rare that you would find that. Whereas first class, it was sort of you had to download this client that had um, uh, it had just like a little bit of data and some icons and stuff uh, pre-installed with it, right. and a dial-up uh, client as well. Um, it sort of looked like Microsoft Windows, or I suppose like Mac. OS in that it was driven by a mouse cursor and you would like, yeah. double click icons to go to different areas. Wow. So that was so something very unique about it. Kind of yeah, it did. It wow. had the first class uh, dial up 
client. That's amazing. So I don't remember doing very much else on the TVO BBS. I think I did participate just a little bit in uh, some message forums. I remembered meeting some... I, rem- I think this is where I talked to the first rave DJ that I ever oh, knew. Wow. Uh, he so was a guy like named Omar. When... Was yeah. It, was it internet-based messages or more Fido packet mail kind of stuff? I don't remember, but the guy I talked to was local, and this oh, okay. was a, like an Ontario-wide uh, BBS service with um, access numbers in different area codes across Ontario. So I guess it was sort of like a DoveNet FidoNet thing, yeah. where they had some some uh, consistency between them. Wow. Uh, so I met this guy Omar, which was, he went by the name of DJ Foodbar. Foodbar. <laughs> he was a hardcore techno DJ okay. in Toronto. This was right before I went to my first rave, so this would have been '95 or '96 or so. Wow. Uh, and we chatted a whole bunch, and he told me about the mechanics of DJing with vinyl records and uh, turntables, and about record scratching and crossfaders and mixers and stuff. And he wow. was of the opinion that you're not a real DJ if you're not doing scratching and turntablism and stuff. <laughs> um, we chatted a little. We chatted a lot about music, and he turned me on to a whole bunch of uh, hardcore techno music, which I love for a long, long time, and still to this day. And I think about him every time I listen to it. Wow. And we talked about video games. We played uh, Quake together a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but it was just uh, having met by chance on this BBS. Oh, and it was also where I met a very good old friend of mine, Karina, with whom I went to my very first rave. She was someone that lived in Aurora, north of the city, which was like 20 or 30 minutes north of where I lived, right. I guess, quite far up. And so I bought tickets from somewhere, and then sight unseen, some girl that I met on a BBS, I bought her ticket too, and I... Uh, drove over to her house and she paid me cash and we met in person for the first time and we hit it off very well we were very good friends geez for probably like 20 years or something now so it was just another one of those super chance uh super chance uh meetings but uh we were like best friends for a very long time we've gotten a little bit out of touch but we do say hello to each other every now and then to this day so that was quite something so is she so that wasn't really around in the rave Hmm? scene or the music scene in toronto or did she move away yeah, we she uh, she lived in Aurora for a long time, and she lives downtown Toronto now. We wow. went to countless raves together. She was probably my primary uh, raving buddy, uh, and we hung out together all the time. Uh, I would see her uh, more than once a week for years and years and years. Wow. Uh, from yeah, from uh, I think she was I think she was in high school. She was in high school when I met her, and it was uh, until after she had graduated from university. We were still hanging out all the time. Oh together, man. So. She's a super, super cool lady that I, I had tons of good times with. But that's uh, so I don't know if that's that's not entirely, I guess, my first internet story really. But it's the story of the BBS where I had my first internet email address, which yeah. I seem to remember putting into some of my mod music. I like sometimes you would download mod music from someone that was really far away, and they'd have an email address in their uh, in their uh, notes, right. like in a mod song. Eventually, they added text fields where you could add. Uh, a description or a little bit of text or something really? from right the, in the file itself. Yeah, right in the wow. file. But before they allowed you to to do that, what most mod musicians did was create a bunch of dummy instruments okay. where you could write in your own description of an instrument. But instead, they just create a bunch of dummy ah. ones and then write a little paragraph of text or something. <laughs> and so they would often put either the phone number of the dial-up BBS for the world headquarters of their uh, their mod tracker group. 
or uh, later on they would add an email address where you could uh, get a hold of them. And usually it was in a university in like uh, Scandinavia and <laughs> Finland or something like that. Yeah. So I, I felt like a real big shot when I finally got to put in my tvo.org email address for like the, the next three or four months where I still did mod tracking. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, that's that story, I guess. That's fantastic. I, so uh, how about you? I was trying to think back. I think my first real memory was my mother uh, was taking a course in statistics uh, using a statistical package called SPSS. Um, oh, yeah, my dad uses that for scientific stuff. Exactly, yeah. It's been around for decades now, and anybody who's mm-hmm. kind of taken a psychology or sociology course probably ended up being forced to use SPSS. And my mom, um, you know, thought of me immediately when uh, when she got this pile of 10 or 15 diskettes, said, here, insult us, I don't even know what this stuff does. And she was expected to do all the statistical analysis, and, and I installed all of this stuff. But with it came um, uh, two disks that I remember. One said, one was called MS Kermit, and mm. uh, another one was some sort of dialer program. I don't think it was Procom. I think it was uh, like a third-party piece of crap dialer. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember she brought the stuff home. I didn't know how to use it. So this is, this is my big mistake. I, I, I installed SPSS for her, and the idea was at the time she was supposed to do all this analysis and then upload her completed file to the professor, like, uh, like email it to the professor. But she had no mm-hmm. idea how this stuff works. So, um, and I think um, the idea was that you were supposed to uh, dial up um, to the uh, university server, and I think using, uh, uh, I can't remember what kind of dial-up connection it was, uh, I guess, geez, I want to say it was slip, um, but I don't know if you actually got an IP address or not. It must have been, been slip-based or something, but you dial up. And then you could access Pine, their email program. But we never figured it out, so I just put the disk aside, which was a terrible mistake. And then about six months later, my mom uh, went to the university. She must have just she bought, must have just brought floppy disks of her, her stuff to her professor. Six months later, went to the university, and she said, okay, you and your sister go play in the computer lab while I'm working. So my sister and I went over to the computer lab, and I think I've told you guys this story before, how I went into this lab, and for the first time I saw those next next OS machine from uh, Steve Jobs, which I was really uh, taken by. and Right, the big cube. Exactly. I saw a big next cube and a big magnesium cube. And we sat down and started playing around with these uh, 386, I think they were 386 DX20s or DX25, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they actually had Windows 3.1 installed on them. So this must have been about 1990, 91, somewhere around there. And, uh, okay. And uh, I remember thinking around on it. And then there was this link on the desktop to a terminal program, which is just a Telnet uh, client, that said Pine. So I double-clicked on that, and it says, enter user ID. And so I ran to my mom, and I said, Mom, Mom, what's your user ID? And she goes, oh, I think computing and network services gave me one of those. Let me dig it out. So she dug it out of her little diary book, and she gave me the username and login. And what's funny is, to this day, I still remember the exact username and password for that account. Um, I, I must have entered it thousands of times. And I remember telnetting in, and the first thing it did was send me to a Pine client. And Pine, I don't remember what Pine stands for, something network email. I think it's like Pittsburgh Institute Network Email. I can't remember. It's got a, 
but it's, mm-hmm. you know, the original Unix email client. And um, I remember getting into that, and then I all of a sudden had no idea what to do. So beside me on the desk was this um, this guy that says general purpose Unix, GPU, how to use the GPU system. And in there, it actually had instructions on how to send an email. And so I followed all the instructions. And to this day, I don't know the first person I emailed. I can't remember uh, who it was. I think it may have been... I might have sent an email to myself because I didn't know anybody's email address. And I remember getting, maybe it was sent to myself because I remember I got a reply, so it must have been sent back to myself. And I was just totally titillated by this whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is just like BBS's. And mm-hmm. um, after that, everything took off. I, I've got like a thousand stories after this, but my, that was my first little experience. And then when I got home that month, I, I, I don't know if I told you guys this story. It was around, um, I think it was February uh, for, for Valentine's Day. My mom bought me a 14-4 modem and the whole connectivity kit from the university so I could dial up uh, whenever I wanted from home. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that, was, that was a big deal. And once I got, once I got that working, I think, I think I was using the Telnet client for about oh, maybe a year. And then around 19, oh, I don't know what year, maybe 93, 94, um, Whenever NCSA Mosaic came out, that was the first time I saw uh, the web as the web. You know, before that, I was using Archie and all of these complex. Uh, uh, do you remember uh, all these search tools like Archie, Veronica? There were a bunch of them. I I know them by name, but I never used them. Okay, so what they were were just um, text-driven uh, methods for searching. So they would have like. A, um, a central server that would index a bunch of FTP sites, and you could use it to search for files in FTP sites. And, um, okay. and what I found it very early on was, if you knew the name, uh, this, this, this is from the Google hackery back in 1992, if you knew the name of pirate release groups like Razor1911, the trick was, you'd look for rzr-1911.nfo. And what the, oh, and you'd find all the folders with that uh, NFO file exactly. ID.dis kind of a file. People were using uh-huh. anonymous FTP servers as ways of caching hidden pirate caches. So, nice. yeah, I remember I, I remember that became a big thing for me. And one of my first big finds, I was really proud of it, was finding Windows 95 beta. So it must have been about 1994, sometime in 94. Wow. I found Windows 95 beta, and it was on like 20 discats or something insane. I was only on a 14.4 modem. And um, mm. I remember I was really, really proud, and I felt like a big, you know, a big man on campus, feeling feeling Windows 95 beta from a uh, uh, wu archive.wassel.edu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, that was my first big experience, and then you know when the web came out, uh, yeah, it changed everything. I, I don't know. I, um, I I spent about a year on Pine and Archie and all of those text-driven kind of interfaces before before NCSA Mosaic came out and. And, oh, my God, it was just like, do you remember the first time you saw the web out of curiosity? Um, I, I don't. I'm sure it was with Netscape. Yes. So it was later than you if you used Mosaic. I just don't remember. I, I saw, what a shame. I saw, Net, I, I saw NCSA Mosaic. It, it didn't last long. It was only on the campus didn't use it for more than six months or something. Um, and then they released Netscape 1.0 or whatever, 1.1. And I quickly, quickly switched over to Netscape because it was much better. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember? I remember the first web page I looked at. 
Oh, the, do tell. Uh, I, the first webpage I looked at was the university's computing and network services page because it was the home default homepage that you would put up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was just there was just what it was was before there were animated gifs, there were just regular old gifs, and um, it was a picture of a little guy with a shovel that had been under construction. And the picture, yeah, like every website had. Yeah, exactly, every single website. <laughs> had that so it was just uh <laughs> yeah it was just it was very iconic it just stood out in my mind it said and the computing network services was like all multicolored, like they used color codes for every single different letter it was like very very early 90s looking and then i remember starting clicking around all these links and eventually i found out that um there was a search engine uh i want to say it was yahoo possibly but it might might have also been lycos if you remember lycos or I do. Mm-hmm. That was my primary one for a long time. Yeah, it was one of those. It was one of the index sites. And once I found out, I found that I just blew my. I just lost my mind. And the first thing, the first thing I downloaded was the. Uh, the first thing was a text file, and I downloaded it over a telephone line. I downloaded, if you remember this, called oh shit, the Anarchist Cookbook. You remember this? Oh, of course. <laughs> and uh, I remember. Um, Actually, it was two things, two or three things I downloaded. I don't know what was first. The Anarchist Cookbook and a walkthrough for Ultima 8 Pagan. And, uh, <laughs> and it was my source for walkthroughs. Oh, and another thing was, um, this came out at the exact same time, I downloaded uh, the Moradell chess codes for uh, Betrayal and Condor. I, uh, ah. I got stuck on those damn chess puzzles, and I remember somebody had written this really, really detailed chess uh, this chess. Uh, um, uh, unlocking guide. So I printed off the whole thing on the university's printers, and you know it was like just sending out reams and reams and reams, and it was echoing through the whole printing thing. And I remember I was like ten or eleven. Well, no, I couldn't have been ten. I must have been like twelve or thirteen years old. And I remember all these grad students were giving me these derby looks because they were in the lab working on their assignment at this point. For like I don't know, twenty-five minutes. Like it was printing on, it was printing on that, uh, the old uh, printer feed paper that was green and white, uh, kind of alternating uh-huh. colors. Because, uh, cause sure, the dot matrix printers. Exactly. And I remember the, the dot matrix printer was inside of actually a, um, it was inside of a, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, a big plastic case to cut down on the noise. And I, mm-hmm. I'd like get so excited to go watch it print. I'd actually like lift open the plastic cover on it to see it print. And, <laughs> and it was so, I just remember like looking around getting so embarrassed because all these students, there was like 10 of them sitting in the lab quietly working and kind of staring at me like, what the hell is this kid doing in the lab? So, yeah, that was, <laughs> it was great. two things. It was the portrayal like Condor thing and the anarchist cookbook. And I remember the anarchist cookbook, I was afraid my mom would find it. So I, I didn't print mm-hmm. it off. I, I put it on a floppy disk and I took it home and read it at home. Or sorry, huh, so confusing my stories here. I don't. I didn't download them over the telephone lines. I used the local network, the LAN at the university for those. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, and, and <laughs> printed them off right from the lab. And uh, and then yeah, so that was I don't know. That was a big deal. Um, yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember I think... your earliest downloads or earliest pages? Let me see. I think I remember seeing the Anarchist Cookbook on BBSs yeah. and kind of having that that same hesitation that you did. I think I actually did not download it just because I didn't know I didn't know whether anyone was watching or how that worked exactly. I didn't want to possess it. Um, 
Let me see. Early downloads from the internet. Well, the first websites that I visited, the one that comes out most prominently is the website for Pepsi. Oh. And, I mean, I wasn't really huge on Pepsi or anything like that, but they had a really multimedia website with animated GIFs and, (laughs) oh, they had some kind of a plugin that you needed to view their stuff correctly. I want to say it might have been Macromedia Director, but maybe that's too late. Um, but they had like they had all these like 3D gradients, uh, really tacky garish um, <laughs> images all over the place. But it was just like really nicely designed multimedia, full 256 wow. colored, high resolution kind of web design stuff. So I just enjoyed poking around there and clicking on various things just to see what it was all about. Um, I will be sure in the show notes to link to the archive.org. Um, uh, archive version oh, of it man, because be they amazing. have the, they have that very page on there You're which is so me. great it's indexed and I think some of the plugin stuff might have been broken but you really do get the gist of it because it was super super cool oh, that's um, something else that I remember was I relied first of all on YouTube sorry what am I saying on <laughs> Yahoo not quite YouTube yeah. That didn't that, that that would take a while to stream on a <laughs> dial-up modem. No, I relied on Yahoo initially. Yep. Uh, not quite so much uh, as a search engine as I did for its directory That's because exactly they had it. this like categorized taxonomy website where you would start with a major uh, topic and then you would drill down to a lesser topic and then a more specific topic. And it was a really cool way just to learn what was on the web. It was basically like a list of every website that you could access on the web at that time, which That's was right. really quite something. And do you remember um, that you actually had to apply to get your website added to Yahoo? Yeah, it was this whole manual procedure. Yeah, yeah, you very had to type in your URL and description of what you had on it. And it would take you know mm-hmm. a week or two for it to show up. And I remember now that you mention it. Oh, I just uh, this is really embarrassing. I think I might have mentioned this in a previous podcast that mm. I wanted to impress all of my friends in grade nine or grade eight um, and show them that I was on the internet because in those days nobody had even heard of it. Like it just wasn't a thing. And then one day, my uh, computing science or computers teacher got an internet connection. And I don't know who he. I think the school had somehow hornswoggled some sort of internet connection. And he was showing the whole class what the web looked like. And I remember everyone was like, ooh, ah. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to really blow their fucking mind. So I spent two weeks learning HTML. And I made this really bad website. I'll never forget this. It had a gray background because I didn't know how to do the background color properly. And <laughs> it had, like, really large Times New Roman text. And it said, mm-hmm. welcome to Chris's website. And it had a picture I found... Uh, 256 color index GIF of this black and white photo of a farm kid eating a big oversized watermelon. The watermelon was, <laughs> was a bit red. It was like it was like a doctored up photoshopped photo. It was like the first Photoshop photo <laughs> I ever saw. And, uh-huh. and it's like he's eating it. And under the caption I put, that's me in this photo or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, oh, this is so fucking embarrassing. I put a bio of myself beside it, and it said that I said I was a, the captain of the, the school basketball team. And I don't know like, what possessed me to write that, or the volleyball team, one of the two. And then I remember I must have forgotten that I put that in the bio, and then two or three weeks uh-huh. later, 
I was like, hey, guys, check this out. And I remember I added myself to Yahoo, and you could, I could just search for my name, um, and, and, like, this is something, something website, Chris's ultimate awesome website or something. And it was just, you know, mm-hmm. this, this picture. And I'll never forget, my buddy Wayne, he goes, you're not the captain of the fucking volleyball team. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was so humiliated. I remember just like, oh. I was just like, yep, I'm the Internet's first liar. It's like, so. <laughs> oh, congrats. I, uh, I remember I went straight home that night, and I, I went on the university server and edited index.html and removed that little part of my bio. <laughs> <laughs> I impressed no one. So. That's awesome. Well, I was inspired very early on by people's personal websites. Like, um, I think that was one of the categories on the YouTube, on the, what do I keep saying that? On the Yahoo uh, directory, the browsable directory, was just personal websites. Right. right? Someone would just make a website and here's who I am and here's the stuff I'm interested in. And yeah. I'm part of this web ring. That's and right. uh, <laughs> remember web rings? <laughs> That's still a thing. And, um,. Here's some links that I like, and here's some pictures that are that are like 100 by 80 pixels. Um, so I just found some guy's website, and I don't know what it was. He was some guy from the States, and he was a kid my age or so, and he was just kind of talking about himself and the stuff that he liked, and I just emailed him, and I just said, oh, I like your website, I like the way that you put it together, and he's just like, thanks, man. And this was just such a, <laughs> wow, I'm in the future kind of a moment where I just reached out to some stranger who yeah. opted to publish something about himself, and I just wrote to him, and he wrote back, and that's his, I never followed up with him or anything like that, but it was just a very memorable moment for me to uh, have done that. I remember uh, Um, when the first emails I sent out and got a reply on, actually, and I believe this listserv to this day still exists, was PI-calc, which you can can imagine is the Texas Instruments Calculator listserv. And Mm -hmm. it was the first time I got, I just got my C85. I went on their listserv and I searched the archives and there were some plans for building your own TI link that would connect up the uh, I think it was the parallel ports of your computer to the, the calculator. And it was really, really simple to build, and I built it, and it, and it worked perfectly. Um, but I went on there, and I sent an email for my mom's email address to this thing, to, to subscribing me to this uh, email, uh, to, to this listserv. Now, this listserv was very active. It would get about 10 to 15 messages a day, and meaning hundreds of emails a month. And my mom got so mad because this would just flood her inbox every day. And I'll never forget, uh, my, my mom, once she sort of figured out how email worked, she sent emails to, you know, ti, uh, listserv at ticalc.listserv.org or something. And she'd say, please, someone, please remove me. I do not want to receive these emails anymore. And then mm-hmm. there would be about 10 or 15 people which would reply, hey, are you stupid? Read the, read the notice at the bottom. There's a link to unsubscribe yourself. And she would do this mm-hmm. like once a month, and she'd get blamed by all these CI calculator people. And I remember it took, oh. it took like three years to get her off that list at some point. And finally, I'm like, fine, I'll do it myself. And I, you know, it took me 10 seconds to unsubscribe her with the automatic unsubscribe thing. But, oh, man, I remember um, I went on CI Calc, and I actually was the first person in my school to get my calculator to get the uh, Z80, it was called Z-Shell, um, to, right. to get the uh, Z80, uh, uh, what would you call it? Um, oh, it's a shell. It's a, it was a shell. It allowed you to execute. Uh, Access the OS. Yeah, right? exactly. 
and uh, I, I remember I have really fond memories of, of writing emails to the TI Cal mixers, and uh, yeah, that was a really big deal when I got a re- my first real email back in life was from that. Huh. And I was really blown away just because I was like, wow, this is like a conference system. You know, people people just write, and you know, you hear back from ten or fifteen people. Amazing. That's cool. All right, I have another memory, and I'm going to have to go momentarily because I'm running out of time here. Um, This memory is of a service called the Toronto Freenet. Oh, this was uh, like a free of charge. Oh, yeah, this is a free of charge community uh, internet service provider. What was it exactly? I guess it was, yeah, it was an internet service provider with, like, dial-up access. And yep. so what was unique about this, I'm just looking at their website now. Amazingly, their website still, still exists, uh, torfree.net. Um, and on their About page, they say they've been around since 1993, which wow. is just amazing. Wow. Amazing. That's 22 years now or so. So um, I, for whatever reason... Oh, right, right. So this this service, it was text only when I dialed into it. This right. must have been around, like, 95 or 96 or so, um, as opposed to paid uh, ISPs where you could get the full graphical uh, TCP IP experience. Right. This one was just text-based. It looked a lot like um, dial-up BBSing. Um, for whatever reason, even though it was free, I either didn't have an account or didn't use my own account. And I don't remember what the restriction was, whether you actually needed to... I don't, I don't remember why I didn't have one. But I would actually borrow the account of my friend Bram, who has been our oh. guest on the show. Um, he was kind enough to tell me his password, and you talked about remembering usernames and passwords. I remember his password from back then, and then he changed it to a much more complicated password, which was uh, such a, a complex and memorable <laughs> password that I actually use that one at work to this day that he told me about 20 years ago. Awesome. So, Bram, please don't log on to my email at work. <laughs> and so it would be, it would give you, like, the text versions of otherwise graphical ordinary websites, but it was, like, a free-of-charge uh, BBS. And so it was, it resembled a lot, or maybe it actually used the Unix Lynx uh, web browser. Yeah. There were two different Lynx web browsers. The older one, the simpler one, was LYNX, and the oh. newer one, which is actually very usable and terrific, it even is. though it's text-based, is LINKS. That's like the sequel to it, I and boy, I is it excellent. It, I thought it was LYNX. The one I used is LYNX. Yeah, that was the old... That's the older one. Ah, that's interesting. That, yeah, so that. the new one, LINKS, that is a terrific text-based, oh, text-based cool. web browser. I haven't used it in quite some time. Maybe the web has evolved too much right. and uses too many uh, script calls and stuff for that to be useful anymore, but it was really excellent. Um, Very cool. So I would... That that was one of my main means of getting on the internet when... I guess I didn't have it at home at the time. I don't know. My memory's kind of fuzzy. Either that or my my sister who was getting older was more sociable and tying up the phone lines a lot more or something. But I would go to the public library and borrow oh, a computer there right. and use their Toronto Freenet uh, link to log on to Bram's account and just to read about this and that. Oh, that's very cool. And I cool. behaved myself. Don't worry, Bram. He knew that I was using his account. He's the one who shared it with me. <laughs> I think the last person I knew that used a Freenet account was my buddy. Uh, he, uh, oh, God. He used a Freenet account until 2001, I want to say, maybe even 2002. And hmm. I'll never forget because I think, I don't know if I told you this story or not. Um, at one point, he was, okay, so the whole time from Walter High School up into university and stuff, he was using an 8086 with a five and a quarter inch disk drive and a monochrome screen. And it was it was like a, an old like uh, IBM XT ripoff kind of thing. 
And poor guy. Yeah, and I remember one day he had like five or six hundred thousand. And I said, oh, man, I'm like, do you want to go get a new computer? He's like, you think I can really get a computer for 500 bucks? I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, we'll just get, like, an AMD-based, uh, I think it was K5 at that point. Yeah, a K5. All right, the Pentium clone. Yeah, the Pentium clone. And uh, and we'll get you, like, a, a 200, you know, two, a Pentium 2, I think it was Pentium 2, maybe so it was K6. But um, it, was a, it was an AMD-based processor. And I'm like, we'll get you, like, bare bones. AMD with bare bones RAM, like 64 megs of SD RAM or something like that, and or 128. And I remember I was just rattling off these specs, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that all sounds good." And I, we went to mm-hmm. this local computer shop, and I and I made some deals with a salesperson there, and I said, "Okay, let's go on the cheapest thing, and just give us cheap off-the-shelf parts, nothing special. He just needs to be able to get on the web and maybe play a couple of 3D accelerated games." So we put together this organ basement machine, and I remember we took it to his place. And we took three hours to get, get an, I remember he had an AOC monitor, which was kind of like the cheapest bargain basement 17-inch monitor you could buy. And, okay. and he, um, he, we booted the whole thing up, and I just remember the first time we turned it on, it booted up, um, and I had, I had cloned over a Windows install to it. And he's like, oh, wow, it's in color. <laughs> 2001 you say yeah i was just like oh, oh my shit. god and i remember after that i'm like all right so so how do you get on the internet he's like well, i just use my free net and i'm like i think it's time to spring for an actual inter isp you know basically yeah. other than free net and he's like oh he's like i don't really need it and i remember he'd been browsing the web using links until about 2001 2002 wow no kidding Oh, it's like being reborn for this guy. Yeah, no kidding. That's, That's pretty nuts. incredible. That's quite something. Uh, so, yeah. All right. I, I'm i afraid I am uh, running very short on time here, so I think perhaps the time has come to uh, call this one to a close. No problem at all. So, all right. Again, thank you, so, folks. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I'm, thank you very, very much for joining us. Yeah, and I got a little bit of sad news for this episode, unfortunately, um, due to some pretty awful life circumstances. Um, I won't be able to continue the podcast from, for for indeterminate amount of time until my, I get my life back on track, which I'm really, really sad yeah. about. So I've had such a wonderful time with you. Yep, it's a real shame, but uh, the podcast will be uh, waiting for you when you get to when when you're uh, getting back. So uh, that is a real heck of a shame. Not yeah. entirely sure what this means I'm really for the podcast at this point. I'm right. But uh, at the very least, perhaps we can call this the end of season one or something yeah, like let's that. Yeah, call, uh, call we'll be season back. one, and we'll get back to it as soon as we can. And I'm sorry, folks, that I I left that to the beginning of the, or the end of the episode. I should have I should have let everyone know a little bit ahead of time, but. Uh, yeah, it's really, really with a sad, heavy heart that I have to let it go for a little while, and when we can get back to it, we'll get back to it. Yep, yep. Do stay tuned. We won't spam you or anything until we've got something to say. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, as always, if you want to find us, I guess you've already found us, but uh, on the web, we're squarefm.demodulated.com, and email is squarefm at demodulated.com, and on Twitter, we're at squarewavesfm. I'm going to keep an eye on all of this stuff at the very least. Not entirely sure what the plan is moving forward. Perhaps I'll uh, I'll uh, open up the podcast to have a chat with uh, friends or do an yeah, interview or two or something like that. We gotta, yeah, we hoping we can do going. something with it. I, I think so, but uh, it won't be the same without you, so it, I'll keep it warm for you at any rate. Uh, thank you. 
All right. Well, it's uh, been a hell of a pleasure, as always. Chris, episode 21, that puts wow. something like, I don't know, 60, 65 hours or something of content <laughs> we've done in about half a year. That's pretty damn admirable. That's I'm proud of us. We're on track to do, yeah, uh, full uh, 52, 52 uh, episode thing by the end of the year. I'm so sorry I couldn't keep going with it. Yep. Well, before you know it, we'll be doing it again. So, uh, wishing wishing you very very well. Yeah, and I'll be thinking of you folks every single day from here on in, and I can't wait to get back to this. Yep. Uh, take very good care of yourselves all. We'll uh, we'll most certainly be in touch, and we love you lots. I love you a whole lot, folks. Talk to you real soon. All right. Catch you later, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.